0: Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name is Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 28 Control, recorded here on another rainy day. It's cool here in Ontario where Sitting here wondering how the baseball diamonds are going to look later this evening for our 9:30 PM start on August 22nd, 2022. This is the day each year that we celebrate our cat's birthday, whether it may be on the 22nd of August or not. I do not know, but that's what we celebrate anyhow. Um, the stats are in on the podcast, and I'm learning incredible things about you listeners. Some listen on Google Chrome, and a few on Apple Podcasts. A couple more on Spotify. But I want to give a special shout out to everyone out there, the 55% of you listeners who are enjoying the Jurassic Park cast on the platform my analytics call, Other. So thanks for tuning in. I'm happy to be in your ears. A continued thank you to Christoph Oakes of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. You can check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. And Today's intro is from the song Grow Old or Don't. And our outro is Centipede. We have corrections today. In my conversation with Dr. Jordan Mallon, we covered a bunch of dinosaurs that have been named in honor of Jurassic Park and that author Michael Crichton. But there was one that I recall that I couldn't find. And I was sure there was one out there that was named after and in honor of Steven Spielberg for his work on Jurassic Park. And I was kind of right and wrong on this one. And it turns out that's because this name never came to fruition. The Utah Raptor, which is a huge dromaeosaur from yeah Utah, is actually large enough to fit the description of the animals portrayed in the 1993 film. Whereas true Velociraptors were more like the size of a peacock, right? So they were going to name this great big dromaeosaur, befitting Jurassic Park's depiction, in honor of Spielberg, with the hopes that they could attract his attention and they could perhaps generate some funding and support for their Utah Raptor mega-block fossil project. Maybe I'll discuss the um. The new story about that project in an upcoming episode, because it sounds cool. Amblin, Entertainment, and Spielberg apparently were unaffected by their motion, so the Utah Raptor Megablock Fossil Project second guessed their ambitions to name it after Spielberg, and gave the honor to jo- John Ostrom, who discovered the first Deinonychus specimens, upon which Crichton based the Velociraptors as well, the name Utah Raptor Ostromasi, Because he did help even also with the research of the Utah Raptor. We mentioned back in episode 26 Control that John Arnold said, quote, you ought to see the vets scrubbing the Tyrannosaurus's teeth so it doesn't get tooth decay on page 131. And I should have caught this way earlier, but I was blinded because I was triggered about the tranquilizer comment that I intended to make. But I should have also noted that wild Tyrannosaurus, aka every Tyrannosaurus ever in the history of the world, didn't have a vet and would have contracted the same tooth decay as Jurassic Park's Tyrannosaurus. This was remedied by their continual replacement of teeth. The teeth were frequently shed and probably snapped off regularly as they smashed their jaws through everything. So, tooth decay was probably inconsequential. They just they had new teeth before they ever had tooth decay. Finally, thanks to my awesome guest Douglas Henderson in episode 27, The Tour, I can say that I've been incorrectly pronouncing the Montana locality and chapter title Chateau like some sort of Francophony <laughs> and stinking Canadian might. Uh, when it's actually pronounced shadow. So sorry about that. Dinosaur news! A new dinosaur was reported in August 2022 in the paper A New Chasmosaurinae ceratopsid from the Upper Cretaceous Farmington member of the Kirtland Formation, New Mexico, which describes a nearly complete skull of a new critter named Bisticeratops Frasorum. The late Campanian ceratopsid has a distinct combination of diagnostic cranial characters on its premaxilla, maxilla, jugal, and palpable ornamentation. It is a ceratopsian named after the Bisti de Nazin wilderness area in the Kirtland Formation of New Mexico, and the Fraserum honors two musicians, Edgar Fraze and Jerome Fraze, who were in a band named Tangerine Dream, and Jerome was later in a band named Loom. The paper says Bisticeratops is quite similar to Pentaceratops, but is much older and is distinguished by the morphology of its snout, the maxilla jugal contact, and the post-orbital horn cores, which clearly differentiate it from close relatives. Its discovery is further evidence for, quote, high taxonomic and morphological diversity within Chasmosaurinae during the late Campanian in the western interior basin. The film is pretty incomplete, but based on what was found, it was fenestrated and similarly elongated, as in Pentaceratops and another closely related Campanian, chasmosaurines. That there are chasmosaurines known from northern and southern Laramidia, the western interior basin, quote, argues against distinct northern and southern dinosaur provinces in North America in the late Cretaceous. There, quote, would have been plenty of migration and movement in these animals moving between the northern and southern parts of Laramidia. In other news, let's talk about a late Cretaceous dinosaur that was named in 2019 in the paper, Nothovorax cabrerae a new early dinosaur and the origin and initial radiation of predatory dinosaurs. This new Herrerasaurid, Nathavorax cabrerae, is based on a quote, exquisite specimen found as part of a multitaxic association from southern Brazil. This late Triassic predator is named the Devouring Jaw from, uh, for Dr. Sergio Fortado Cabrera, and it's quote, particularly interesting because these dinosaurs are extremely rare components on late Triassic land ecosystems. And only one specimen has been found before from a brazilian bed and that was back in 1936. Herrerasaurids were early bipedal carnivorous basal saurischians among the oldest dinosaurs known first appearing in the late triassic they were relatively small superficially resembled theropods and had primitive traits like a five metacarpal hand but with only three fingers uh, with curved claws and a hinged mandible they may have been either basal theropods or basal ceritians. It's just too hard to tell, apparently. The holotype CAPPA slash UFSM 0009, housed at the Universidad Federal de Santa Maria was excavated from the Santa Maria Formation, and it's comprised of an almost complete skeleton. The new specimen is well supported as a member of Herrerasauridae, thanks to the phylogenetic analysis machine, making this the first Herrerasaurid recorded from Brazilian strata since the discovery of Storricosaurus pricei 80 years ago. Its, quote, unique combination of traits supports the ass- assignation of a new taxonomic unit, increasing the diversity of hererasaurs. Additionally, the new specimen comprises the most complete and best-preserved herrerasaur dinosaur ever. An ecomorphological analysis, which is a term that came up last week, perhaps we should dig into what that is a bit more closely one of these days, shows that hererasaurs preceded the ecological role that would eventually become occupied by medium-to-large-sized theropods. The others add that this specimen is so excellent, there are many more studies and papers to come, but in terms of introducing this animal and showing how it may be very important in the rise of the dinosaurs, this will have to do. Alright, with the corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. I'd like to introduce you to my guest today. It's Dan Rose. Dan and I met while on the set filming a pilot in Los Angeles for a new YouTube reality series starring Gary Busey, Charlie Sheen, and Tori Spelling called This is Just a Flat Out Bad Idea. The series wasn't picked up and we had to get tested at the clinic afterwards, but we got some cool autographs. Who did you get the autographs of?
1: I mean, I tried to get Gary's autograph, but uh, he actually beat me unconscious. Um, Which was like, you know, I should have expected it. That's my fault. Um, you know, you don't make fast moves around games, you know? Um,
0: the first rule of handling. I did get a
1: couple handling. of the crew's autographs, because I feel like the crew are underappreciated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, they, they need, like, Dylan, the the camera guy, yeah. and uh, Sophie, the uh, the continuity writer. She was great. Keeping... The other people I did not care for, including you.
0: Getting Gary back into the same starting blocks at the every take was impossible. The continuity oh, editor knew, was the real hero.
1: <laughs> I mean... To keep his pants on was a struggle. That was... He just wants them off all the time.
0: Yeah, I don't think he's welcome back in New Jersey because of that oh, problem.
1: New Jersey. I mean, if, of all the places to not be wanted, that <laughs> must feel bad. That can't feel good.
0: <laughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> so you you work as a post-production supervisor for Sinking Chip Entertainment, which means probably the worst thing you've ever heard when you're working on set is, oh, don't worry, we'll just fix that in post.
1: I mean, like, it still happens. <laughs> stop staring it. I think they understand, like, you know, like, most people have come to find that, like, it's now fixed in VFX. It's mm-hmm. not fixed. But some people, are, like, if you're working on set, post is, like, anything after, like, production. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, post is technically, like, you know, digitizing the footage, editing the footage, you know, sending it out, getting notes, doing network passes, and then sending it out to VFX to start working on, and then Mm -hmm. sending it to audio, online, they'll get color done, Um, and then VFX can take anywhere from six weeks to 12 weeks to 22 weeks, depending on how intricate and, like, the designs of the animals and the asses themselves. But, like, it's just, it's such a bad phrase, and it really hurts my, it's just my feelings, even though I don't have feelings anymore, because I've been doing this so long. It's just expected, like, we kind of just expect, like, you know, if they send us something and it doesn't work, we're going to make it work. Yeah. It's just the way it has to go, it has to get done, the show has to be made. We just have to go, okay, well, we're going to fix your problems, and then you're still going to blame us for the problem itself. So that's a lot of it.
0: The VFX guys are great about getting the pants back on Gary. Um, Often, (laughs) like we got multiple shots that just don't work until until post production gets the pants in there.
1: I honestly feel like that the budget went so far over on (laughs) Gary's pants because, uh, and that's what caused us to not get picked up. I thought the show was great. I thought that the premise was amazing. You know, uh, it's just you know you can't spend. 50% 50% of your budget on Gary's <laughs> pants. Um, and that's what we learned. And I think the next time we work together, uh, we'll have that knowledge.
0: Uh, absolutely right. And uh, he's, he's, a, he's a dream to work with. <clears throat> so you mentioned... I mean, I, he's
1: not in my dreams. He's <laughs> in my nightmares. But he's there. He's, he's follows me through the day.
0: So I have to ask about, is it is it part of your your responsibilities to make the decision to go back and order reshoots?
1: Um, yes, I mean, not my not my prerogative to make that call. No, it sounds like the it is last resort to, yeah. <laughs> It's my prerogative to call it out and mm-hmm. say, you know, we've done the edit, we've assembled, we've cut it together. This doesn't work um, unless we have a shot. Like we can't. The continuity of these two shots don't line up. We don't have enough coverage of close-ups, wides, mm. medium shots um, to make this scene work unless we cut something in. So we can either go and film that or you can just accept that this scene is going to kind of suck. <laughs> um, and that it's, uh, it's up on the executive producers to say, you know, is production still running? Do we have time? Um, do we have a budget for it? Can we fit it into the schedule? Mm-hmm. And then hopefully they do. And then the show actually is better for it. Um, or they just go work around it and like just do whatever you can. It's also not a flawless process. No. <laughs> because, like, the production team doesn't know really what we're asking for. Because they, they shot that three months ago. They don't remember what they did. They don't remember where everything was. We send them references, they don't look at them. So we, uh, <laughs> we sent back one uh, cut one time, and we were like, hey, you know, you, there's a shot of this desk. And the point of the shot of that desk is that there's a tooth on it. There's a dinosaur tooth. And then so we're like, okay, but you put it in the wrong spot, actually. It's it, continuity wise, it would be on the bottom right corner, you put it in the top left. Then we sent it back to we sent it back to set and said, "Hey, you know this has to be reshot. Can you just? It's, we're delivering in two weeks, actually, so this needs to be done like immediately." Uh, luckily, we were still shooting like future seasons, so the crew was still around. And then so they they literally shot it, and they shot it great. It looked amazing. Mm-hmm. There was not a single tooth on the table. <laughs> okay. So the one thing that we were requesting was not considered in the reshoot of the scene. So we go to, the, we go to the, uh, the exec, we bring him into the office, and we're like, hey, so they, he's like, okay, so we got the reshoot, and we're like, we got it, um, but uh, do you want to see it? <laughs> <laughs> so we show it to him, and he just goes, we're gonna have to re-reshoot it, aren't we? I was like, yep, yeah, we're gonna have to re-reshoot it, and we have, uh, now we have five days till delivery. So we get this reshot, like the next day, get it edited in, signed off, Put it through color, put it through delivery packaging, and then send it off to the broadcaster just in the nick of time. But just the fact that they couldn't figure out that the one thing we were asking for was like the one thing that they actually had to pay attention to. Mm. They just completely missed it.
0: And I think you lose a little bit of your soul every time that happens. (laughs)
1: Oh my god. (laughs) That's the thing. It's like this it's nice being soulless sometimes, just you don't have to worry about that loss anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but it looks like you've won or your crew has won. Um looks like I see your daytime Emmys and CSAs. Yeah. I'm not sure what they are and the Prix A uh, lots of different <laughs> uh, recognitions for for the the programs you worked on and I've watched some of them and they're fun. They're good.
1: Yeah, no, they they are they're, they're great little kid shows and uh you know like we really we really put a lot of our work in like and a lot of our effort into it like mm-hmm. um I'm a workaholic at times. So I, I put my life into trying to make these things good. Little recognition. I don't get any of those awards, but like <laughs> I appreciate the accolades and I appreciate that the company is taking in these Emmys and mm-hmm. uh, especially like when my teammates get a, get nominated in the audio team or VFX artists that I know. Like I know everybody pretty personally because we've all worked so close together for so many years. Um, so when they do get awards, I do appreciate it. And I do get a little bit, of, hmm, why is there an, an award for this guy? <laughs> but uh, but nobody knows what
0: I do, so it doesn't make a difference. Well, it's Sorry a true no problem. It's a true story that uh, I had no idea that you worked for for sinking ship or, or were doing any of this kind of work. But it still enjoyed Odd Squad uh, just enough that the kids are sassy enough, they're quirky enough, so they're directed well and, and uh, cast well, and then the, the it's written well because it's just zany and it's fun. And it's Odd Squad is an incredibly unusual show, and, and it uh, delights in what it is. And it does itself well, so uh, I've enjoyed that.
1: Uh, I mean, the, the the best thing about that show is just how crazy you can get with
0: it, mm-hmm. because
1: like the writers are like these grown men who are just like, what can we make these children do? And like, and, like they're all, like they write the kids as if they're like adults, as mm-hmm. if they're like truly like FBI style agents. And, yeah. Like, but they're dealing with these ridiculous things, and they were so open to like kind of like suggestions and stuff like that. So if you were like how can we make this weirder and then you kind of throw out like i don't know a a flying jellyfish that's made of peanut butter and jelly and then just go okay and then just go to vfx and they just look at you going why did you say that (laughs) because that adds another five weeks to their work
0: so how do we design this for sure and then so you guys do it looks like live action stuff puppets animated shows i'm seeing now
1: But yeah, we do a lot of animated stuff. We do, um, mostly it's like live action animation, like Odd Squad, similar to that, um, where we actually like combine the two. Um, That's what's, we so kind of interesting, like the working with the kids. And like these, most of these kids are kids that have never worked on anything before. Mm -hmm. And uh, just the fact that they pick it up so quickly and, you know, we keep getting like these spectacular actors out of these kids. Like a lot of them have gone on to do like Millie Davis, who was working on us with she was in the original yeah. uh, Michaela Lucy is uh, from Dana, but she's gone on to like do movies recently. She's gotten like accolades for those, and she's continuing to work in television as well. Mm. And uh, yeah. several of our other actors yeah. <laughs> um, have gone on to do great things, and uh, expect like more and more of them to come along.
0: And they're still young, like like they're not twenty. Some of them, <laughs> they've been doing no, this like, for for yeah. ten years. It's incredible.
1: <laughs> yeah, they like, I think Millie started when she was about six years old,
0: hmm.
1: and she's a, she's, it's been about like 14 years or something like that. She's mm. still only like 21.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, they they still got you know 75% of their careers ahead of them. It's just amazing. Yeah. And of course, so all these things lead us to uh, you get to work on the Dino Dana movie, but did you do much on Dino Dana? It has an interesting kind of buildup that there was Dino Dan, but that wasn't yes. you. <laughs> but he should have no, no dino dan then dino dan Tracks adventures which was his nephew or his cousin
1: it was um oh gosh i think it was his little brother or his like nephew who lived with them it
0: had to be his cousin like they were be. in the
1: same family
0: yeah and then there was dino dana after uh trekkie grew up a little too much <laughs> uh the yeah. mag 2020s magnum opus dino Dana uh the movies so that uh, unfortunately was kind of spoiled by the pandemic where people couldn't perhaps celebrated with the, the grand opening they wanted to do, but,
1: uh, no, yeah, it was tough. But, but, uh, no, I worked, um, on all four seasons of, uh, Dino Dana, the show, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then had some, uh, work to do with the, the movie, but I was actually already working on odd squad mobile unit by the time the movie came around. Okay. But yeah, no, the, the four seasons of, uh, Dana were just intense. Like, cause we, we were doing four seasons of a show that needed to be delivered in two. And, and with the VFX team just constantly being told, like, things are changing. You need, we're, we're redoing this. We're changing this. We're changing this for timing. And so that means like re renders, which take weeks. Hmm. And uh, it was just, the whole thing was madness. So, fun time of my life, though. I still got to go out and have fun.
0: So, so when it comes to like making a dinosaur show or a dinosaur movie, is there is anything specifically different about doing that kind of especially when you're trying to do the dinosaurs accurately? Is there more input that goes into a show like that than just doing a a, a general weird show or a general kind of alien show? Did, like I understand with the movie there were there were dinosaur consultants from like legit like the ROM or something like that, right? Was David Dr. Yeah, David Evans yeah, was I mean, on it and
1: Well through the series like um and if you did i started it with a, a sinking ship on androids which is another show that we worked on with amazon like we, it was just all like it was like a pigeon and a dog that was a robot and another robot that was like a part human and a machine that was kind of like a crane animal mm-hmm. um so it was, it was kind of more fantastical you didn't have to really worry about the science or the the uh the worries like of like oh is that realistically a pigeon because it's just a pigeon yeah um so, but then we moved into, yeah, Dana, Dana and we did, like, there was, like, through the script phase, through the pre-production phase, through to post-production, when we had questions, there were experts that we were working with. I can't remember the society that we were working with at the time. And then, yes, we moved into the movie with the ROM, and actually it was screened at the ROM once it was uh, premiered, uh, which was wonderful. And we also worked with the ROM on a thing called Zool, which was an a exhibit that they had.
0: Yeah, that was fun. What was
1: your first What was your first introduction to dinosaurs?
0: Me? I got a I have a book, I still have it that my aunt Ruthie gave me for one of my birthdays before I could read, of course. And I carried this thing under my arm but lost it all kinds of places. It's you know, it's uh, duct tape up the spine and it's got like impressions of um, snails and stuff from when like, I left it in the garden. On <laughs> <laughs> all the, page, and the pages are all worn and weathered, but uh, it was it was called like Dinosaurs and Pre- Prehistoric Beasts. By there's like a teddy bear. I don't know what uh, production company that made books had a little teddy bear. Yeah, that would have been it. And then it just had like a tyrannosaurus. And it had styracosaurus and like all the old names of dinosaurs that nobody uses anymore, like trachodon. And uh, there was a monaclonius. Nobody calls anything monaclonius anymore. Uh, <laughs> Polacanthus <laughs> doesn't
1: that? exist, or they found out that it doesn't exist.
0: I don't know. I think the spe- so they they knew what it was and they described it off of like lousy remains. And they just found, like, so many better remains um, of things that they can more mm-hmm. confidently say, this is what it looks like. And so they just forget about the thing they don't know anything about. <laughs> and it's easier that way. <laughs> oh, it, yeah,
1: my introduction was, uh, I remember my dad, um, for, like, some, some around the time I was reading, like, you know, uh, Where's Waldo? and stuff like that, just little kind of, like, kids' books. Um, there was this, like, magazine that was being sold in, like, corner shops. And it was... Uh, dinosaur book but it had um 3d glasses in it that came with the book mm-hmm. and so you could go through and you could, And then have like dino facts and like little games you could play inside of it right on and uh, and so like I, that's like that was the first instinct and like kind of introduction for me into dinosaurs and i thought they were so cool and then like you know like dino riders and cadillacs and dinos came out and i was just like well i have to watch them mm-hmm. because they're so awesome and then, like, I didn't ever, never thought I'd like start working in a show or an era where like half of my life is now contributed to like dinosaurs. <laughs> but uh, like, it's been great, and like that knowledge as a child and that that like happiness and that uh, nostalgia just came back as soon as I started working on the the series. And like the amount that I knew that helped along with the show and mm. like people asking questions really did bring the show like a new level of intelligence so people could just like keep moving and keep going without having to worry about studying things because i was just there to go uh, i know that
0: it's amazing that dinosaurs have given you a little bit of your soul back after the people who'd failed to do their jobs during the reshoots had taken away so it's an <laughs> interesting balance of play. <laughs> it's,
1: it's, it's a very like a weird balance situation
0: so have you learned have you had a chance to learn something new about dinosaurs working on on any of these programs or even just being around I, when they're being made
1: i was just talking today um with someone and we, they came like this this idea came from this this uh this thing and it was just you know dinosaurs the way we see them and the way they're represented in media they're not they're just like basically the skin has just been slapped onto the bones mm-hmm. And if you look at any animal, any person, that's not how it works. There's fat, there's muscle, there's tissue. That's there should be. There should be like bigger dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Or like there should be like there can be fat dinosaurs who've been like getting ready for like long hauls of not having a prey around to eat, uh, like for the cold winters. Like it's it's insane to me that I never thought of that. Like they, I just always took at face value. But scientists and archaeologists <laughs> were one hundred percent right at all times and any time they change their opinion and were like, Oh well, they have fur now I was just like, You are one hundred percent right as well. <laughs> you have now moved from like this to this, and I'm just riding along with you, and I'm just paying attention, I'll just listen to whatever you say. Yeah. And I never thought about like the actual like, you know, body mass of a dinosaur being any different from what I've seen in Jurassic Park or any other media.
0: Yeah. It's there's... insane. uh, I think they call it shrink-wrapping, but it was usually um, an artist would take the skeleton and then just basically color skin onto it and say, there you go. Whereas if you look at... And so I've seen arguments saying, you know, this is ridiculous and here's why. And they'll show you a skeleton of a cat. If it were just the shrink-wrapped bones of a cat, you'd be like, well, that is not a cat. Or a chicken or a pigeon. And when you look at, like, just the skeleton, you don't see what the actual animal looks like at all. uh, Yeah, exactly. And so... Yeah, it does beg the question. Certainly, most of the dinosaur skeletons are not fully representative of what we're looking at, and it's very, very challenging to to think what on earth else is sticking off of these things. And I've seen like yeah. the Brachiosaurus with like a turkey waddle, which is you know forty feet long for no reason. I've seen <laughs> there was a new program called Did you see <clears throat> the Amazon series "Prehistoric Planet," where they no. put they put these air sacs on the sauropod necks that would inflate like um the 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 neck of um like a rub- like, a, like frog a frog or something frog. or a, a, some birds mm. do it and so they just had like all these balls go up the side of its neck and inflate to uh to represent just what could be strange about dinosaurs but like if they had feathers and where they had feathers and if they had big big guts i there's something i was reading somewhere where they they get into the <laughs> biomechanics of like what animals were like and the argument was that like the the heart of a one of those great big sauropods would be the size of a vehicle <gasps> and you could sit inside yeah. and drive around I guess if he really so chose or, like, yeah we're like so a, big
1: like aaurus like to get the blood pumping from tail to neck like it'd have to be massive it have mm-hmm. to be like half of its like chest cavity it's insane mm-hmm. why aren't we like that why can't I have like a massive heart so I can just
0: do it you, know, you could not worry about it. blow your head clear off your shoulders if you'd pumped it. Down. <laughs>
1: I mean, I'm, I'm almost there.
0: Because <laughs> of the post-production? All right. <laughs> Have you ever had a chance to pitch a show idea?
1: Um, a couple times. Right on. Uh, wasn't super confident in them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm more of a conversationalist. I'm more like, you know, sitting down chatting than like pressures on this is the test moment. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: Everyone's looking at you and you need to like be on. Um. I mean, I'm fine in social situations. Like that's, you know, me, like I thrive, but like in like moments where like something was on the line, I like, I immediately just go like, I become like a stumbling little boy <laughs> who doesn't know what's going on. So it's it's like, I kind of am missing that person. Like, you know, like the Dan Ackroyd to like Bill Murray. <laughs>
2: like,
1: Bill Murray's very like calm, chill, doesn't really want to do anything and he if he does anything it's because he really wants to whereas Dan Aykroyd's just constantly out there selling himself selling everything he can mm-hmm. and like pitching everything every moment yeah, he and sounds kind of more of a Bill Murray
0: I think the real glue on the Ghostbusters was the Harold Ramis yeah I got a funny feeling he was the real glue <laughs>
1: I mean yeah I, can, I I think that without him Two people would be dead. <laughs> <laughs>
0: like, Winston's right? like, no, I'm not joining this team.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there no, you... there's no, there no chance they would just walk away. They'd
0: have to murder each other. <laughs> All right. So, do you do much work with the Foley artists in post production?
1: Um, yeah, we have we've got several uh, Foley kind of houses that we do uh, work with. Very like over project to project. Um, they're really good and they like know our schedule is kind of tight and they know the work needs to get done quickly. You generally don't get enough notes on Foley to be honest. Like other than like turn this down, turn this up. It's mostly like, you know, they nail it and everybody's happy. Um, it's more sound effects that really like tend to be the like very specific Mm -hmm. notes of like, okay, we need like kind of a grunt here of approval or a grunt of sadness if something's died. And, um, yeah, and it's, the audio team's always, like, uh, I think they've now taken in, like, a couple, a few, couple of few Emmys, maybe two or three or four, and uh, they, they're they almost nominated every single year, so we obviously have a very good audio team that's done amazing work.
0: So, perhaps you can help us settle this, we were, uh, I was just talking with a guest on episode 23, The Tour Part 3, in, uh, in the film Jurassic Park, when Nedry... He's reeling the winch to get his Jeep back on the road. He slips in the mud, (laughs) and there's this whistling sound as he wipes out. You hear it? Yeah, that's a lot of slugs,
1: right?
0: That's a slide whistle of some sort. For some reason, when he wipes out, there's, like, this little whistle that blows, blows through it. And uh, we're, like, I don't I was
1: know. It as, I was taking it as the off-screen Dilophosaurus. You think so? Like, that, yeah. Because it sounds, like, similar to, like, the kind of squeals and squeaks that they do in the rest of the movie.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. they. Ho- I think it was
1: kind of a hint that, like, because, he comes back up, and for some reason, they're just in the car. So I think that was supposed to be, like, yeah. a hint that, like, they're around.
0: Well he certainly they they hoot and they and they creep around. It feels like this entire sequence is like Looney Tunes, like uh Well it's definitely like very Warner Brothers where Nedry the Dilophosaur it's like poking its head around the tree and it's like stalking him a little bit like just like Tom and Jerry might. And then uh there's that just that silly slide whistle sound and like Wayne Knight is obviously, you know, a com- comedic performer and he's portraying his distaste and his ignorance of the dinosaurs. And and then this whistle... seems
1: legitimately seemed to me that they went from like playful yes. to deadly very quickly, almost a drop of a hat. It was insane.
0: It's almost set up as a misdirect. Like you're having so much fun in this scene. And then this, uh, like he's having just like this skit out in the mud sliding down the fence and I'm going to run you over with my car when I come back down. And then, and then as soon as that frill comes out, the whole movie stops being fun and delightful and romantic and charming and wondrous and turns into people screaming and running from everything. <laughs> and it's yeah. that specific moment where it goes from the, the wonder of dinosaurs to the, why did we ever make dinosaurs? <laughs> <laughs> well, the that, like
1: the, like the, the idea that like, this was a kid's movie up until this point. Yeah. This was for children. This was made for children. Everybody's enjoying it as a family. And all of a sudden this man is horribly murdered. Like, really like, He's like the the spinning is kind of like off screen, like you know, he's screaming and he's like, oh, this is bad, this is pretty bad, even though they told you like it makes you go blind. But then you just like you go outside of the 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 jeep and it's shaking and it's screaming and yeah. he's howling for howling in pain, and you're just like, what's the age range of this movie? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, I had an age check when we saw it uh, the first time I watched it at the. In the very beginning when they're they're loading the raptor out of that cage or whatever. I was like, I don't think yeah, I'm not ready for this movie. I don't think. Oh, one is... <laughs> of the best
1: moments of any cinematic movie ever. I mean, the amount of times anybody's ever quoted shoot up.
0: Yeah. <laughs> shoot up! I think it Sp-
1: doesn't need to make sense. Everybody knows where it comes from.
0: So Spielberg's like uncanny with his ability to to take a subject and make it more charming. And this this whole scene in the film right up to that point was fun in the book. There is nothing fun about the Dilophosaur catching Nedry. Like, it is just straight up, he gets caught and ripped up, and and he's just praying to die by the end of this thing. And uh, and that's, that's funny that, you know, Spielberg took that, and I don't know what kind of script he was handed. Like, I really feel like he was just like, okay, well, we're not doing that. Uh, with most of the script and he just kind of took a scene and then made it Spielbergy instead of whatever he was handed. I got a real good yeah. feeling about that. It'd I, be fun
1: to see the original draft of like what came out of <laughs> Michael Crichton's mind from the book to the movie.
0: Well what are your fondest memories of the film? What part you I mean we talked about the beginning, uh obviously Nedry, you're you're saying that the I mean
1: legit like legitimately the uh the Australian Hunter character um Yes. Robert, Robert oh, it's just such a good name, first of all. Yeah, like the name itself is just badass, and it just it, like I think I would like grown up with like you know, uh, uh, crocodile Dundee, mm-hmm. and like so you know Australian hunter guy was kind of this the the cool guy to be, and so but just every line of his was just like he was the only adult in the room.
2: Mm-hmm
1: for the entire movie. Like, everybody else else was like, oh, it's so wonderful, or it's like, oh, this is going to be horrible, but he's just like, what is the security situation right now? Like, where are we at? Why are the fences down? What's going on? And everybody else is just worrying about all this other superfluous stuff.
0: He he feels like if Willy Wonka had no control over the factory, and he was just in there, (laughs) and, like, everybody's (laughs) farting around, getting themselves killed and dragged away by Oompa Loompas, and he's like, Told ya, <laughs> except for I, it's not his like factory. It's
1: almost, it's almost more like the, like the HR representative <laughs> for the Chocolate Factory, who's just never listened to. Yeah. just like, you can't invite children into the factory. We don't even have any safety protocols and just like going with it. And just like, I'm, I mean, I've worked here for 20 years now.
0: In the book, Muldoon has a great big gray, they call it a steely gray mustache. Which, which would have been so cool yeah. for him to have although that i imagine would have
1: been cool. i think i mean i think i think uh, to me as a child watching it the first time he was the truly like coolest character yeah. in that movie like mm-hmm. everybody says like malcolm like or sam neill or like uh grant sorry um but like muldoon was the coolest guy like he was the guy who like knew what he was doing knew how to like like handle what he was doing and like he knew his job mm-hmm. and like everybody else was like kind of running around and being crazy and Muldoon's just like this is what we need to do <laughs> and then he's the one who suffers
0: for it he, everyone else gets away with it in in the book he uh he's like I'm pretty like he doesn't say this outright but with everything he does he's like I'm pretty sure this is gonna be my last day here so he <laughs> he gets in the jeep he's like we're gonna go get people out of the uh the park. Uh, If anybody wants to live dangerously, come with me. He grabs a bottle of whiskey, hops behind the wheel, and just like, all right, here we go. (laughs) He just gives it his best shot. He's cooler
1: in the book.
0: He's insane in the book. But yeah, he's definitely like, I might be dead tomorrow. Let's uh, let's just yeah, get this job be, done. We are,
1: we are, I know what these raptors can do. I know what these dinosaurs can do. He,
0: he and goes we have no protection against them. He's got he, he fires rocket launchers at the raptors in the book. He uh, he basically was like <laughs> shot for shot with the T Rex for a while. He's he's insane. <laughs>
1: uh, I would love to see I would love to see a full like script like basically a script based directly on the book and mm-hmm. just see that made. Or so, even just animated or something like that, just to see what it would have looked like. Well, as we... um, It it's kind of reminds me of um, Jurassic Park uh, 2, mm-hmm. the Pete Palmswayth, uh character. I think it's Roland. Uh, well, my favorite is I just found this out. So there was a cut scene from the, the second film where they started and he, the, the little Indian guy comes over and goes, you know, like, hey, um, we're best friends. Like, I haven't seen you in forever. I've got an idea. Like, I've got this, like, hunting trip. And he like the, the guy's just like, I've been I've done everything. I've hunted mm-hmm. everything. I no longer have any desire unless you can bring me something like monumental. Mm-hmm. And then uh and then, so so it kind of sets up their actual friendship mm-hmm. versus just like when he shows up he kind of like feels like an assistant. Yeah. Um but then if you look at the wikipedia of like their their description as characters, it says it's like actual character name and then it goes Roland's best friend.
0: Oh, his best friend.
1: <laughs> and it's just adorable.
0: Well, when he, yeah, I think when he dies that, uh, it's a, he has a sad moment for him. It's, oh, it's I mean, God,
1: but, but again, like one of the best moments in the entire series is the
0: stay out of the long grass. Yes. I can't go by I a field without sure. thinking that,
1: <laughs> I mean, and like just found out this recently as well, that, uh, they actually, before production spent two weeks, or I think it was a full year. Uh, growing that grass to that height oh yeah and it was like it legitimately like they just cgi'd the uh, the paths of the dinos mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but everything else was correct everything else was uh, practical
0: that was really cool that was an awesome scene for as weird as that movie was that was there were a lot of really cool moments um, There are
1: skid moments for sure yeah
0: in terms of Go seeing ahead. like uh more faithful adaptations of what was in the novel and making them into a film at some point I had a guest that was on for episode 13 named Chateau. Uh, his name's Phil Hoare from, um, he's from Canberra, Australia. And he was like, you know what, for what it's worth, what's in the film, almost all of those scenes are taken right out of the book. Very little of what is in the movie was made up. And there are a couple of big parts that were, but other than that, like almost every scene was specifically adapted from the novel almost directly, which is pretty impressive. And so if you, awesome. you want to track this story of, the big one. I think you were saying you like the clever girl scene, so we can tra- yes. we can track
1: Rock the clever, legitimately <clears throat> the best line, best line in the entire film from the first film is clever girl. So
0: let's uh, let's track it. The for sure. moment
1: of tense. Yeah, the tense, like the tenseness of like, and you've got this guy who's proven himself to be like the badass hunter, like the mm-hmm. smartest guy character in the movie, and he's the one who's been outwitted. And, like, he's also, he knowingly sacrificed himself. He knew that this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's similar to, like, the, the novel, where he's kind of like, you know what? This is going to happen. <laughs> but at least, at least I can save her. And, you know, it's also kind of a challenge for me. So we'll see how it goes.
0: So we, we first meet the raptors in the opening scene. It's called Accident at Isla Nublar. And this is connected to the opening in the novel, where in the book we have a construction worker that has been myst- uh, in a mysterious backhoe accident. And it gets helicoptered into a little clinic with injuries that resemble a mauling. Uh, and the worker dies at this little clinic. And it's uh, logical to think that this is the opening sequence of Spielberg's like, interpretation of what happened leading up to this arrival at the clinic. So um, this that, that opening scene where you have like the loading gate and stuff like that seems to be... Well, maybe we won't talk, you know, show a guy having his femoral artery, artery spurting all over the, the, the table. And he, he sits upright and vomits all over the place and starts screaming, like, ghost <laughs> words and stuff like that. It's, it's terrifying. So th- maybe he was like, maybe we'll just, you know, do the part that comes before that instead of afterwards.
1: Ryan, I mean, like, even before, like, if you're thinking of, like, this entire park has been built. Mm-hmm. Like, this transport of this raptor is one of the last things they do before they even bring anybody in. And they're supposed to open fairly shortly. It's insane to me with the lack of health and safety protocols that mm. this place has. That's the first time that the lawyer, that's the first time the lawyers are like, maybe ahead. we should get some experts in. <laughs> and also, like, you're not even bringing in like you're bringing in dinosaur experts, not mm. security experts. Yeah. You need security experts who are like, is this place up to snuff? Why do you only have one guy in the IT department? You maybe need to hire a couple more people. Mm-hmm. It's insane. It was just like to, that. Like this, these two paleontologists, like a paleontologist, an archaeologist, and a chaotician,
0: mm-hmm, yeah. are
1: like you're, are the people that the lawyers were like, yeah, that that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it, I think there must have been an interest in keeping it low key because the whole island is a secret, and so Gennaro, the lawyer, represents the investors, and he handpicked who he felt would be able to give him. Uh, the insight necessary to decide whether or not he should pull the plug on, but on the friends,
1: park or not. he picked the chaotician. Yeah. Like he picked Malcolm, who yeah. was like the least useful person for determining the park's safety because all he's doing is trying to hit on the ladies and yeah. just telling you, like, anything could happen.
0: <laughs> in the book, he's written a report outlining all of his uh, thoughts on the island years ago. and uh, uh, okay. And so they invite him in anyhow. His opinion has not changed. And he didn't write a new report or anything. For what it's worth, it doesn't make a lick of difference why he's there. They already have his opinion. Don't open the park. I think there must have been some thought that if they showed this guy who did not want the park to work that it is safe, that if they could win him over, that they were you know in the clear. But instead, they got him eaten. (laughs) So it didn't work out well for them. But I think that was the idea.
1: The wonderful scene where he's, you know, lying shirtless the thing. So I mean, if anything, there was no reason to not bring Malcolm because we needed that scene of him just looking real sexy.
0: Yeah, he was wonderful. So the the opening scene where they're uh, they're uh, loading the the raptor into the pen. So in in the film, this scene is most fascinating because it elaborates upon upon Muldoon's nemesis, who is the big one, which is the the special velociraptor they have, who is most commonly known as. She's she's famously the clever girl. And uh, okay. that that term, Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter calls Clary Starling a clever girl. And Arnold Schwarzenegger as Hauser in Total Recall calls his like, uh, secret wife a clever girl. And obviously Bob Peck as Muldoon. Uh, these are all <laughs> dramatic performances of the same line. And I can't get all of those different accents mixed up in my head whenever I hear it. So Arnie yeah. Schwarzenegger and, and yeah, Anthony Hopkins. Good. <laughs> i believe we first meet the big one in this opening scene i think this is the one that they're shooting the tasers at oh, in the there yeah and uh Muldoon's well, going,
1: that I. That tracks because i think um, they say muldoon says when they're when they're kind of going through the raptor pit he mm-hmm. goes you know like we had more of them but when this one came in he killed or she killed off two of the others and then left left the weaker ones alive Something, so yeah. that makes
0: sense. That's right. So the next scene is uh, it's called Feeding Time. They're at the raptor pen. Muldoon gives a bunch of that same dialogue that we're actually getting them in the novel, um, saying that the raptors should all be destroyed, that they're che- they have cheetah speed, that they're astonishing jumpers, and in the novel uh, they're not fed anything in this scene, but they do attack defenses, demonstrating their incredible ferocity and swiftness and coordination, and that they've learned. Which this is special to the novel. They've learned that humans are easy to kill. And so, uh, how did they how did they learn that? <laughs> well, that's what Malcolm wants to know. How did they learn this? This seems like a safety concern that I need to learn more about. And so, yeah, uh, that that's this this idea that's kind of interesting
1: that for the movie they decided to go with um, you know Muldoon just mentioning you know the mm-hmm. test defenses that are smart and then versus like let's watch this countdown.
0: What's fascinating too is that this is done. There are two conversations in that scene on top of each other. Like Ellie and Hammond are talking about getting Chilean sea bass, while uh, Grant and Muldoon are talking about the Raptors, and like they're having two conversations at the same time, in one scene on top of each other. It's I think, really strange. And
1: only one of those conversations is actually like important to the why they're there. But <laughs> it's, it's like, crazy because they duck in and out of each other's
0: conversations. You. Like he's interrupting the ham. It's so bizarre, but it's really well done. It's really yeah, cool. Yeah,
1: so it's almost seamless. Yeah, no, it's insane.
0: Uh, in the novel, they're not no, fed really. anything. The raptors aren't. Um, there are no cattle mentioned on the island, but there is a pen with fifty goats in it, or something like that. And so, the well, raptors... they do, so
1: they don't. In the novel, do the uh, the goat feeding scene where, yeah. like, the goat later in the night just kind of disappears, and then you just get the <clears throat> carcass of the light
0: dro- <clears throat> dropping on the uh, car. They do in the Trannosaur paddock, but not here at the raptor pen. Oh, okay, got gotcha. you. So now we're learning that there were eight movie raptors originally, when the big one came in, and she killed all but. Two of the others. Uh, okay. Okay.
1: I had my numbers blocked.
0: Yeah, a little like bit. He
1: killed two. I think.
0: So that's a hot trivia question. How many raptors are there in Jurassic Park? Which I
1: guess, I mean, three, I guess.
0: It feels like there were a lot more, doesn't but, it?
1: Yeah, it always, I don't know, because, well, especially when they go after that um, that cow when they mm-hmm. do the feeding scene. Yeah. I mean, I imagine that there are, there are only three tails popping up because you don't really see anything other Wait, than, like, it feels the tails like a swarm in yeah. the back of their nets. Yeah, but it looks like it's, like, yeah, like five, six, seven.
0: But it's only... Just
1: like well, I guess it's just the intensity of how much yeah. they're, like, moving around and shaking.
0: But there's only three, which is crazy. I always, until I thought about it, I was like, wow, I thought there was a lot more. But uh, that's not the case. Yeah. And then Muldoon has this good line. He goes, that one, when she looks at you, you can see that she's working things out. She had them all attacking the fences when the trainers came out. And that's really interesting. So.
1: That was very much his, like... Uh, his Jaws doll's eyes, uh, like, monologue. Yeah.
0: Just
1: like, <laughs> this, is how, this is how severe a threat these things
0: are. And then at the end, he, he adds with British emphasis, they remember. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is going to be important later on. So the next time raptors kind of come up is kind of a split with what's in the movie and what's in, in the film. It's uh, the Triceratops scene. And this is lifted right out of the novel, but it's been changed significantly. In the book, it's called Stegosaur. So they don't have a Triceratops. So it's not even
1: the right dinosaur. The right
0: well, they adapted it. Stegosaurus wouldn't have been as majestic and wonderful as a Triceratops. I mean, that scene was very good when Grant gets to hug it. I think everybody's very I happy. Mean, I
1: think so. but for me, a Triceratops would have been more fun to see.
0: Mm-hmm. Or, sorry,
1: yeah, a Stegosaurus. Um, I love Stegosaurus
0: just... too, but it's got like this dinky little head. It's hard to hug.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's easier to hug because you can fit your whole arm, armor. I right suppose, it. I suppose. <clears throat> I think all she does to the, the Triceratops
0: is just rub its kind of bridge. Uh, mm-hmm. Rub its, uh, rub it's <laughs> plates and things like that. So it portrays there's a stick sagasaurus rather than a Triceratops, and it lacks the majesty and the wonder from the film. The book uh, is more about problem-solving a mystery, and there's less emphasis on the dino droppings <laughs> in this part, too. <laughs> So what's relevant... I mean,
1: what, 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 what emphasis are you talking about? It's, uh, it's almost not mentioned except for... know. <laughs> the dro-
0: <laughs> droppings?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: then Sattler doesn't get to be tenacious without the droppings. That's right. So what's relevant yeah. to the velociraptors in this chapter is that... So what's relevant to the velociraptors in this chapter that isn't in the movie adaptation is that this is when Grant discovers the velociraptor eggs. In, in that a couple of varieties of dinosaurs are breeding in Jurassic Park. So they're like trying to figure out why the stegosaurus is sick. And they're like looking at the ground, trying to see what has it been eating that's making it ill. And as they're looking at the earth, they find raptor's shells on the ground. And so that's oh, when wow. they find it, which is way sooner than what you get. Yeah that's,
1: yeah, that's way sooner. Like that's, that's, they don't discover those until like, you know, after like the night scene, the dra- the Tyrannosaurus attack, yeah. the jeep falling from the tree. That's insane.
0: So, like, Ellie, rather than digging through poop, like in the novel, is instead prospecting the ground for pharmacological plants that might cause the stegosaur sickness, and they're looking at the ground, and they find the eggshells.
1: I kind of enjoyed the the Ellie searching through poop and everybody else being kind of squeamish. I yeah. felt like it gave her agency. It gave her, like, you know, it showed that she's not, mm-hmm. she's not afraid to get her hands dirty legitimately, mm-hmm. um, versus, like, everybody else is kind of, like, you know, a scientist and standoffish. And, and, and without sounding she's like, the one who's like...
0: yeah. Without sounding like goofy or anything like that, like, there is Spielberg definitely did this scene for the girl power. And it uh, and you'll see more here. So in the novel, Gennaro doesn't actually go on the remainder of the tour and get eaten by a Tyrannosaur. He stays with Sattler and the vet, who's named Doctor Harding. And he do you know why Gennaro stays with the six stegosaurus and doesn't go on the rest of the tour?
1: I mean, doesn't it, doesn't, don't they say like there's a storm approaching and if you go with them, like it's going to be like, it's already going to be here. So it's, it's kind of more dangerous to go out <clears> and continue.
0: So here we go. Gennaro- also,
1: why does, Gennaro doesn't need to be on the trip. Like, it, like the other guys are watching the trip from the, <laughs> the control room. The, the he doesn't need to be out there. Well,
0: he, he wants to see the space. dinosaurs too. He's, he thinks they're fantastic. So Gennaro says, I think I'll stay and go back with Harding in his Jeep with, with Dr. Sattler on page 169. And then Malcolm says oh, really? Malcolm says to Grant, why exactly is our lawyer staying? And Grant says, <laughs> I think it has something to do with Dr. Sadler." <laughs> and then Malcolm goes, really? The shorts, you think?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and then Grant says, it's happened before.
1: Oh, wow. I mean, that's actually like, that gives Gennaro a little bit more character, at least. A little um, bit. He's not a great character in the first place. He's <laughs> no. just kind of like a squirmy little jerk lawyer but in terms of adaptations
0: um, but... somewhere in the film's production spielberg said nope that's not happening in my movie we're going to do feminism better than this and Gennaro's going to get a, be a cowardly hors d'oeuvre for the tyrannosaur and sattler will say dinosaur eat man <laughs> woman inherits the earth <laughs> and so they, he gets I to mean... do the girl power scene this all happens instead of of people staring at her legs for the movie in the book
1: my favorite is like he says that and then he has, like, a full scene where Malcolm is just, like, hitting on her yeah. for, like, a good five, ten minutes. And then, like, she basically becomes, like, the mom of this makeshift family that, that Sam, like, uh, Grant and everybody. Like, so you can have that girl power scene and say, like, we're not doing girl power that way. But then they still kind of, you kind of have your, your uh, both sides of it. And just, mm-hmm. like, you know, we're going to make her a sex object, but she's a strong, powerful woman. <laughs> to sex object. She's allowed to be pretty. It's all right. <laughs> well, anyhow. It's just like the constant, the constant hitting on, yeah. like, the, the constant like love, lovely w-eyes between her and Grant.
0: Well, it was a low bar to clear, but Spielberg took a step over what Crichton did in his book, <laughs> and
1: that's for sure. Especially for, like, 1993. Yeah. Uh,
0: so the next part here with, uh, with Velociraptors um, is what was actually in, in the in the movie. Uh, it's the scene called Life Found Away. So the stegosaur in the novel also informs the scene... In the film, Life Found a Way, the egg discovery happens well after Grant and the kids run and escape the T-Rex and fall out of the tree and commune with the Brachiosaurus, and Grant stumbles upon the nest. And then just reveals off the top of his head that uh, the frog DNA means that the dinosaurs must be changing genders because some West African frogs are known to spontaneously change sex from male to female in a single-sex environment, and then he chuckles. Jeez, I guess Malcolm was right. <laughs> <laughs> so we remember, there's only there's only three Velociraptors, so like... I don't know in the like three Western Western African frogs like wind up in like a trio somewhere one day and just, well, I guess I'll be a man then. <laughs> like, How does this There's <laughs> only three. I mean, it sounds like a, an odd number. It would be different if you had like a whole bunch of like, well, I guess somebody has got to be a man around here, but <laughs> it's so bizarre that there's, what if there were only two would one be just like, well, I guess I'll just spontaneously change. Uh, one gender. of us
1: has to do it. Yeah. One of us has to do it. Might as well.
0: <laughs> it's so bizarre. In the novel there are eight raptors none are dead and in fact Hammond has specifically rejected requests to have the animals destroyed and the eight of them are in the raptor holding pen which is a fenced off area and in the novel we learned that the raptors were in the park environment until one got out killed two construction workers and maimed a third and that was the backhoe incident and uh, That was said to be in January. So this novel occurs in August, and so for eight months, the the novel raptors have been in the raptor holding pen, fitted with extra electronic sensors, so the park is prepared for the next time they escape, which is written as basically inevitable because they're natural cage makers. So the novels have lived in the park for years, and they were breeding and nesting, and apparently doing all of this nocturnally, beyond the observations of the vets and the feeders, and the handlers and all the staff members, nobody realized these raptors were breeding. It reached a population of 38 in the book, plus a couple that were Jeez. on a boat heading to the mainland who wouldn't have been tabulated in the inventory scan. <laughs> so these raptors were like basically reproducing like gremlins. Uh, but in the movie, there's only three of them, and they're in that pen. But somehow one of those three, probably not the big one because it's still a clever girl, so the the big one can't be the boy uh spontan- spontaneously well, that, changes from female to male of, and then lays an egg under it's a collected. tree
1: yeah like that is a question of like you know like the, the electrical fences went down mm-hmm. but the, the, the actual like you know concrete like container they were in didn't go down no so like there's no reason for them to still have escaped like it wasn't just like an electrical fence, and then as soon as the electrical fence is off, like they can just break yeah. through
0: it. So like it's it's a it's a real tough part of the movie where it's exciting, it's thrilling, it's it's consequential. It validates what Malcolm was talking about. It it tells this story that life can't be contained, that it breaks free and and uh, and finds a way dangerously if if you know at times. But it doesn't practically make any sense that these three raptors that were all tied together somehow were somewhere else in the park also having babies. Yeah. unbeknownst to the handlers that were, like, they can't, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. It's kind of like one of those parts where we're adapted from the book, but, like, the connective tissue that was important to what was in the book didn't also get adapted into the film, which is a little disappointing. So, so, so,
1: my other favorite thing is, I, many people have brought this up before, it's like, why was the, like, main power system so far away <laughs> from it. the main building? Like, why would you... And also, why was it in the most dangerous place of the park? Why was not it near the Brachiosaurus? Mm -hmm. Why wasn't it near, like, the Triceratops, the herbivores? And, like, the raptors were in their own little self-contained place, which you'd think would have its own energy source, or at least backup power. Like, if if they're the most dangerous thing in the park, you wouldn't leave it to be, like, there's one switch, and Netris turned it off, and, like, you can run everything from there. You'd think if there'd be like a generator that could run for maybe like eight hours in the mm-hmm. backup to keep that fence up while you sort out whatever's happened.
0: Yeah, they uh their safeguards, they how do I put it? I feel
1: like I should have been on this trip and I could have given them all this information and then they, they would actually have a great security team.
0: It's a it's a fun story. It didn't make a lot of sense in the, I think <laughs> So for what it's worth, uh Muldoon was like, There's no reason to have velociraptors. They're uncontainably dangerous. They're unstoppably ferocious. And they're like, well, okay. also, like,
1: nobody's visiting them. Yeah. Like, nobody's seeing them. That's right. Like, they're in this little container for safety. Like, Mm -hmm. you don't, they're they're not part of the park. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to the raptor enclosure. Yeah. Because apparently the raptor enclosure is literally, like, a football field wide. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) it's not on the track. It's not on the track of the jeep that's going around. So why do we have them?
0: Yeah. And Muldoon was pretty clear. He's like, we got lots of dinosaurs. And they're all great get rid of these there's no reason for them to be here like it's disarm the nuclear warheads get them out of here just stop this and and uh if
1: somebody had just listened to the one person yeah. in the movie who actually was smart
0: and so we get close to like the the muldoon getting you know being that guy that has to shrug his, his shoulders Go. well i guess it's got to be me that dies we get to the the electric fence scene they don't have to pay for any more cgi dinosaurs in this scene to be exciting they can just uh, climb a fence which is kind of fun and uh, so that worked out, and they could. Uh, and instead, they just stick the Velociraptor in the power shed, uh, which is kind of neat—a good jump scare down in there. So one of the Raptors of the three is in the maintenance shed, and she—that—that that also happens in the novel, which is pretty neat. And so one raptor follows. I think Arnold goes down there to turn the power on, gets killed, and then Gennaro goes down well, there.
1: We don't know. He could just be missing an arm. Yeah, somewhere he's, he's like, just
0: hanging out somewhere. Like, guys, I need so a medic it's hard to chain smoke with one hand
1: uh, also I think we can all agree that Timmy and his sister could have fit through that fence they didn't need to climb up maybe Grant needed to go up and over it because mm-hmm. he's a little bit bigger but like there were massive holes in that fence where they could have just fit through they were very small children
0: I think Spielberg just they, just, they were going to fix that in post and they never
1: did <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you just get away with it you just go, well, we're not doing that it's yeah, like, it's yeah. uh,
0: suspension of disbelief. It's fine. So uh, one of the movie raptors is in the shed, and it terrorizes Ellie. And then as Ellie escapes, she conspicuously leaves the gate to the maintenance shed ajar. That's one of the three raptors. It's in the maintenance shed, so if you're keeping track. And then we get to the Clever Girl scene where, while Ellie's fighting her way out of the shed, Muldoon is out in the foliage trying to hunt the other raptors. And there can only be two because there's three and one's in the shed. So, uh, you know, Muldoon spots the one raptor standing motionless. And this is in the novel too. This part isn't, he doesn't get attacked here, but there's a scene at the beginning where the raptors attack the fence. They're all looking at the fence and the you know, one's standing still and then two attack the fence when nobody's watching or paying attention. And uh, and that's how they get their first glimpse at these velociraptors. They think, wow, these are the craziest, most, these are even more amazing than I ever thought. They're more dangerous than we could have imagined. And this attack that's there is Remember uh, when Grant is making uh, teasing the, the giant turkey kid? Yeah. And he's talking about how the yeah, velociraptors, there's one standing still, and you think he doesn't see you, and then you don't see the attack from the two you didn't even see coming from the sides? That is taken right out of this raptor scene at the beginning of the book, and it's put into the scene with Grant where he's terrorizing the kid and then it's also used here where Muldoon's getting, you know, he's paying attention to the one raptor and doesn't see the other one coming. So this... this...
1: Which is my thing, like another thing that like Muldoon should know that.
2: Mm-hmm. Like
1: Muldoon what? should know. If Grant knows, Muldoon you think would, he's the kind of guy who would have studied up on these things and been like, oh, that's the way they'd attack things.
0: <laughs> well, but the actual animal behavior of these things is is, in the book quite often said, like we don't know anything about targets, them. Yeah. Like, there's a part in the book where they're talking about how this jungle river ride, you're supposed to take like this lagoon ride and and go by the dinosaurs, but they didn't realize when they designed the park and started putting the animals into the, the settings, oh, Jesus, these Dilophosaurus spit 50 feet, uh, blinding toxic venom. Uh, we can't have people going by on the rides. <laughs> We're going to have to close this down. So, uh, so they're learning behaviorally things about the dinosaurs they didn't imagine. Um, I think they described that, uh, one of the triceratops, they need to put a special red stripe on the jeeps, or else the triceratops will kill the jeep. <laughs> and they don't know what to do. About it. So the animals are constantly surprising them with their behavior, because they're still so new. They don't know enough about them. So That makes sense. So that, um, that, that Muldoon isn't familiar with their pack hunting, when there's only three of them, isn't unbelievable, I don't think. But uh,
1: Well, I mean, there was eight of them. Technically,
0: yeah, I suppose that's true. Well, seven, because once they introduced the eighth one, yeah, yeah, three, yeah. And she must have been tough as a as a youngster. That's for sure.
1: I mean, how do you kill? Like, did did you did you think like she took them all aside and like kind of quietly killed them, or just like mass murdered like six of them all at once?
0: So I've come up with a theory, and I think it's more like the fairy tale of the Frog Prince. Are You familiar yeah. with that? Yeah. There was this beautiful big one, and seven suitors and one by one each of them turned into a male but they were not what she was looking for <laughs> and so she swiped left literally <laughs> across their neck to all but two of them until she found her prince and then she left the raptor pen laid an egg somewhere out in the in the in the woods and uh that that's how it happened i'm sure of it i think that's exactly how it happened
1: that's probably the best backstory we're going to get for that segment <laughs> of the movie. I don't think anything's been mentioned otherwise. So that's where we're at. That's what it is. That's that's <laughs>
0: solid. We recall that Muldoon had ordered the command in the opening scene to shoot her. And having overheard the, his observation while at the raptor pen that they remember, these moments should lead us to believe that the big one hasn't forgotten who Muldoon is, and she's been plotting her revenge ever since. And uh, just like, which alien was it where Sigourney Weaver... Um, Wakes up out of her cloning phase and then like dates the doctor and then she goes killing aliens for a bit.
1: Um, the third one, I believe, because it's uh, Charles Dance, who's like a priest slash doctor. Right. Um,
0: this is right out of Alien Three, then, or before Alien Three. She gets cloned. Yeah. She wakes up. She finds a finds a mate and then goes uh, and k- killing the things that bother her.
1: <laughs> I mean, so so wait, you're saying that the big one, the clever girl, is Ripley from Alien.
0: It makes sense. There you go.
1: <laughs> I don't know how it makes sense, but sure, yeah.
0: <laughs> In any case, well,
1: well but, um, m- who was your favorite character of the of the series?
0: I like the potential that Tim had. We were talking about about it before. So he and Grant are like dinosaur specialists, but Grant's character flaws that he can't do computers. In the book, Timmy's
1: and also he hates kids.
0: Yeah, yeah, and he hates kids. in in the In the novel, Grant doesn't do computers, but he loves kids. Uh, and Timmy is the is the computer whiz. Lex is oh. just a little little girl. She doesn't really do anything except for cause drama. And so, and plus, Tim has his entire backstory about not you know his parents are splitting up. His dad treats him like garbage. His sister, therefore, treats him like garbage, just like his dad does. And so you got this whole broken character that loves dinosaurs is going to grow up to be this awesome paleontologist but is good with computers. So he's like got the extra pieces that Grant didn't have and he could be this hero that could go into the future uh, and I think he he had a tremendous amount of potential to be a a broken but motivated super character going forward which would have been really cool.
1: That, what that would have been amazing for Jurassic Park 3 though. Because mm-hmm. he does, he like, and, and Tim would have been about the right age, uh, like, for him to be like kind of the helper that I think is played by Alejandro uh, something, got Pollux from uh, Face Off. <laughs> um, but like, yeah. that would have been perfect, and like, he is. They they did bring them back for the start of two mm-hmm. uh, when he goes to see Hammond. They're there, the and, they're, and they're literally for like maybe two minutes, and they're just like, I honestly don't know why they brought them back. Because it just seems like a kind of a throwaway. And then it's like, oh, they're going to be involved in the movie. No, they're just like, it's the same thing as like Malcolm being in Jurassic World or or, uh, the Fallen Kingdom, where it's like five minutes and then he's gone.
0: Hardly at all. Yeah, it's a token cameo just to say, hey, remember these movies are related. That would
1: have been a great through line for Tim's character to like become Grant's like second in command and like actually follow him. And Mm -hmm. that, and like, and I mean, uh, I think at that point, Tim, the, the Tim's actor had been in, had been like going and doing stuff again because he was in The Pacific, uh, which was a follow up to Band of Brothers, mm-hmm. um, and he's, he was just great in that. Um, so it actually would have worked out perfectly. I don't. know. I guess maybe money or
0: he was part uh, of Queen in Bohemian Rhapsody too. I think. Really? Oh, really? I haven't seen yes, it. Yes,
1: I'm remembering. I'm remembering the promos. He's in there. Yeah, for Let's
0: sure. He would have been. Imagine that you could have had a, a, a um, some episode in the future, which would have been very much like uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where he finally reconciles his differences with his dad, and uh, they have this this wonderful moment at the end. I think there's a lot of potential for that. That you know, when they go back to the book to see what could we do with this, they completely overlook like the moneymaker. I think so. I think Tim had a, a tremendous amount of potential. He was a great kid, and I think as a reader, when I was a, you know also a, a preteen, that I think that was. The character that you identified with as well
1: are you saying that this franchise squandered a lot of the opportunities <laughs> <laughs> that, that, doesn't follow. that doesn't follow for me i, I can't track that <laughs> i mean you can literally ask i don't need i don't know if this is correct but i feel like if you sat down and like had a kid these days like even a teenager watch like you know jurassic park jurassic like the whole the whole franchise mm-hmm. i don't think anybody's favorite character is going to be um, I think it's Claire and
0: uh, Owen, Owen Grady
1: Owen mm-hmm. and like and neither like no one they're not they're not characters they're just there to fill a void and also uh, this is another thing I, I think I'm I'm just very angry about this so I'm gonna mention it Claire is one of the worst characters that's ever existed. She legitimately caused all of the problems in Jurassic World, got mm. everyone killed. Everything that happened was because she didn't listen to the people who she was supposed to be listening to because she's just an idiot. And then the second movie, it's just brushed aside. Like, <laughs> she's literally responsible. She was in charge of the, of the park when that happened, and yet no consequences just she's also changed completely 180 her character to be like oh well now i care about dinosaurs because they're real things and it's like this is a grown woman who who was very poorly written and is the villain of the first movie
0: mm-hmm. yeah like, she, she should have at, at least been suspended from her duties uh, if not fired so <laughs> but like
1: but then she's like playing it office as like she's she's the one who's really trying to save the dinosaurs mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. like but you caused this. You understand that. Like, you are literally like that. She should have had more emotional uh, trauma. To like, I literally got, I, I don't think it's 10, I guess tens of people killed. To
0: be fair, I, don't I think it was hundreds. Th- I think that there is a novel that goes between Jurassic World and Fallen Kingdom that details Claire's journey from being the corporate, I guess, CEO or park manager or whatever she was to being the the sanctuary Claire, where she's trying to to wrangle and save the dinosaurs. I think there's an entire novel in between that, I mean, I don't know how many people read it, but...
1: I was going to say, was it a hot ticket item? Number one seller? (laughs) 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 Because the one thing I saw when I watched Jurassic World and Between Fallen Kingdom, I was like, I need more Claire Mm -hmm. in my life. (laughs) That was the one thing I was really missing in my life.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, nonetheless, we, we, we do get Ripley, the big one, who, um... <laughs> <laughs> That's her new name.
1: She's so girl.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who coordinates the, the, the final strike on Muldoon. And and uh, I, I honestly believe that in, in Jurassic Park, she remembers, this is the guy that tased her, this is the guy that ordered that she be tased. And... Um, while well, Bo is out there, and we've talked about this, you know, protecting the people who have ignored his pleas to destroy the raptors. Knowing full well that they are too dangerous, and they were too lethal, and they are too smart. He realizes only too late that now he is face-to-face with the big one from the opening scene, and she finally has turned the tables. And then he has that brilliant line where he gives her all the credit in the world. Clever girl.
1: I mean, the only thing missing from that scene for me was the raptor talking.
0: Mm-hmm. The raptor should say, "See you at the party, Richter."
1: <laughs> you know how I said I was going to kill you last? I lied.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so um, that's kind of like the yeah, that was such a mo- moment in the in the film that everybody really appreciates. Uh, the raptors continue to be you know villains, but uh, they aren't quite as in control after that this attack appears in the novel too but it's totally different like we were saying it's at the beginning of the tour when the raptors attack the fences and this sort of um characterizes two different moments it's the uh, the turkey the oversized turkey kid and then this moment too where this, this particular attack is described in the novel and they they put that description of the attack into two different parts of the movie so that was pretty neat in terms of how influential that moment in the book was and so we got, um, if you recall, the, the two raptors in, in the jungle just outside the visitor center and then the one in the generator room. Then, with uh, with the Ellie. And so then the big one and the one that just killed Muldoon enter into the next scene, which is the kitchen. And so in Is it the, the two, kitchen
1: first or is it the they're in the room and they're trying to figure out the locks? I can't remember the order.
0: Because Timmy and Lex are in that in the control room. So, they had to be saved from the yeah. kitchen first. So, the next scene is in the kitchen where the two movie raptors enter the kitchen and have a cat and mouse game with Lex and Tim. Uh, it's
1: beautifully shot, beautifully shot scene. Yeah. Like, all the little reflections, everything was great.
0: That, yeah, and there's a. In the novel, um, there's only one raptor, but the entire scene is done through the night vision goggles. All the lights are off. Okay, yeah. Right? And so, uh, Lex is entirely blind in the dark. And he's trying to save her from the one raptor that's, uh, I guess, banging around in the kitchen too, can't see in the dark. So that's pretty cool. And it would have been neat, but I think we can agree that Spielberg nailed it. So I don't know if I would have changed too much. It would have been well, wild. Well,
1: feel like you don't want to just make – I think the, the whole point of, like, changing the Lex character was to make her not just a useless mm-hmm. uh, kind of damsel in distress. Like, actually give her some agency, give her some character to play with. Like, once she learns Linux mm-hmm. – um, and like actually useful, it's when Timmy actually becomes useless
2: in that scene
1: <laughs> where she's trying to solve. She's trying to like. Also, I don't know if you know Linux. I don't know if you like, but generally in a computer, like every system is run differently and set up differently. Whether or not Lex knows Linux, mm-hmm. she doesn't know the system that she's working on. Right. So she she could like just go. Okay, well I I don't know where anything is. <laughs>
0: Yeah. What, what? What? Yeah. What? What folder is everything kept in? I
1: also just love that this display of like you know the '90s video of yeah. just like oh yeah because in computers you just travel around the computer mm-hmm. and there's little blocks and you go
0: that block. Well, how and everything works. I mean, we're talking 1989, and uh, the the Land Cruisers have video monitors in the cars, and like data is able to be transmitted from the control room to the cars on the tour. Like, I can't specifically speak to how great technology was in 1989 but that's wild and like when we look at the film which was set you know in 93 that computer system looks super dated <laughs> and yeah yeah to to imagine that even like a couple years before that uh where were Crichton's writing this that the idea that like i just don't know how realistic or how fascinating or how fabulous it was that they were able to project what data they had on their computers onto the cars like, so that they could also yeah. read that. I don't know if that is complete fantasy or if they're... Like, cell phones feel like a big deal in the 80s, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> like, I mean, like the car phone? Yeah. I
1: mean, I guess that the cars were electric and maybe they were transmitting through that, the railing of some kind. I don't I don't know how that would work. But mm. um, can we talk about the Timmy in the room for the hacking scene?
0: Okay, yeah. So they, they in the book, too, they also lock one of the raptors in the freezer. And so that's two raptors remaining in the movie. That makes it there's... There's still, like, eight or whatever raptors in the, in the novel. That doesn't really matter. So, yeah, we yeah. get to the control room, and uh, and they're they're racing. And, uh, yeah, go ahead. What's your, what's your thought on Timmy there?
1: <laughs> I mean, so you've got Grant and Ellie blocking the door from the raptor trying to get through. The very smart raptor who knows how doors work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got, you know, Lex doing her thing on the computer. And you've got Timmy kind of just... Standing around, Lex. Mm. You know, kind of. Yeah, do it, do it. You can do it. I, I support you. Mm -hmm. Like, just kind of. And then, then you've got literally the shotgun that could save them all, Mm -hmm. but like a foot away from Ellie and uh, Grant. And all of a sudden, Timmy does nothing. Mm -hmm. Timmy does not help. Timmy is doing absolutely nothing to to help anyone in this scene.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And all that Grant or Ellie had to say was like, "Timmy, get us that shotgun." And I will, We will save the entire movie. And Timmy just sits there over his sister's shoulder. Mm-hmm. I assume trying to like kind of mansplain what technology is.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> For what it's worth, I don't know what it's like to be struck by ten thousand volts of electricity, but like he might have, he may have just suffered a pretty severe stroke. So
1: <laughs> he's not all there
0: right on an now. empty stomach. So he might be. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but he still, he might have been shocked, but he's still got those puns lined up.
0: <laughs> but yeah, our, ju- our journey with the raptors in, in the film, uh, they come through the glass, it terrifies everyone, they escape through the through the drop ceiling, and uh, get out into the foyer. Uh, so the lobby is different, it um, has an animatronic or robotic Tyrannosaurus, it doesn't have the skeleton and it's not fighting anything. Or maybe it is. Anyhow, it's animatronic <laughs> or robotic and when they arrive okay. into the foyer at the end, it, uh, the animatronic Tyrannosaurus has been torn up. And, like, all the robot parts are sticking out of it. So, so at some point, the raptors in the novel came into the, the visitor center. The
1: raptors did a side quest yeah. where they were like, oh, we got to tear up this thing. But like, oh, should we be tracking those people that were really upset right. with? No, no, no. Give
0: the, them a second. The banner that reads, When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth is in the novel, too. It is dangling from one uh, hinge, so the Raptors also must have gone up and said, "No, no, no, we're going to tear this part down." Uh, so, it, so the lobby looks really distraught. Also, uh, somebody steps on a guard's ear. <laughs> so they uh, they chew up a, and I think they, I think the rest of the guard is somewhere around. They get a security card, and that's how they get through the, through the park once the the things are up and running again. Oh,
1: that is dark.
0: Yeah, <laughs> um, but not not any less harrowing than what happens in 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 the film where, um, you know, the big one and her mate. Uh, whether that means her buddy or her partner, I don't know, but, uh, the big one and the other one are, are chasing everybody down. There's just two raptors. It felt like there was more raptors in that scene.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: But it's just, a I two. mean,
1: well, the one, this is, no, that's, I'm thinking of two where he gets, he gets kicked by mm. the uh, gymnast and falls on
0: a spike. <laughs> yeah. There's lots of raptors in, in the lost world.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I love the third one. Like they always relied on like the raptors are the villains. Mm-hmm. Like the raptors are going to be the ones that are tracking them, hunting them. Mm-hmm. He was like, there are so many dinosaurs. Yeah. There's so many types of dinosaurs. He could have tried to change it up a bit. Also the fact that they, what was it? The the actual raptor that they use, like the name that they use is actually a much smaller raptor.
0: Yeah. The velociraptor is more like, I've been mean, trying to come up with a good parallel, but like, I feel like a peacock. I mean, a heavier peacock, but a peacock. Still,
1: peacock size. Big, long
0: tail, low to the ground. It would have, you know, a longer snout with sharper teeth instead of, like, a tiny little bird head, but... Peacocks are dangerous, man. Yeah. Don't undersell them. The oversized turkey is not far off. Imagine, like, you know, when a turkey, that Tom turkey thing where it blows up like a balloon and it... uh... (laughs) ruffles its feathers, if a dinosaur did that, you'd be like, okay, I'll step over here, no problem. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think one of my... What's your favorite death in the Jurassic Park franchise?
0: It's hard to argue with Gennaro.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the line, when you gotta go, you gotta go, it's just legendary.
0: Again, yeah, it's played for laughs until it turns. That's just like the Delovasaur thing, like, too. The
1: only person that no one cares died.
0: But Muldoon's so good... Uh, in in the Lost World, when the dude gets stepped on as a tyrannosaur runs up the tr- the game trail.
1: Oh, and he's, and he's actually still stuck on his foot. Yeah, that's pretty uh, wild. That's brutal.
0: Um, they what's good about it is they're also special. They they find a neat little way to to do something new for yeah. the first couple movies. You know, I've,
1: my I've... saddest death is Eddie from Two. Oh
0: yeah. The, yeah, just a like hero, the, the yeah.
1: only person who was doing everything right mm-hmm. and didn't deserve any of it, and went to save us—not even friends, just people he'd literally just met.
0: I would say certainly and the like, most impactful one. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he's the only person who had nothing to do with that ty- ty- Tyrannosaurus sex mm-hmm. baby, Tyrannosaurus Rex baby, not sex baby, um, <laughs> and uh, and he's the only one who paid for it. Everyone else got away scot free.
0: Yeah, They just lost their van. You know what? In Fallen Kingdom, I didn't recognize Ted Levine from. Do you remember? Um, he was James Gum. He was Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah the guy who the guy who steals and the teeth. From he the plays
0: the most stupid written character I've ever heard. We're like, well, but I, also,
1: like car- cartoonish. Yeah,
0: it was like, literally like.
1: like Everyone else is sort of, like, sort of human. Yeah. At least. Uh, and then he's just this kind of, like, cartoony villain from, like, uh-huh. a like mustache-twirling, yeah. like, what do you call it?
0: When, when Ted Levin or Levine, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, but how, when he changes, like, into a new character, he's unrecognizable. He's really, really fantastic. And so you don't even know you're looking at him when you watch him on screen. And there's another guy that does it, too. Uh, the guy that plays Ludlow, the lawyer in The uh, Lost World. I think his name's Arliss Howard or something like that. Yes. And yeah. if you look up like pictures of him in different roles, he is completely transforms into a new person when he goes to make a, a character. And and it's fascinating. It's absolutely those two guys are yeah. extra they weren't great in the I mean, other than careful with the suit, it costs more than your education. Other than that, those two characters had nothing of value to offer these. Like, they were so poorly written characters. In, well,
1: that, that. That's, that's the big thing is, like, so, like, Roland is hired by Enjin to go and, you know, capture all these dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. He needs to go there. <clears throat> he's hired all these mercenaries that he knows, and he's in control of them. Why is the lawyer businessman on that trip? Like he's protecting his investment? No, he's, <laughs> he's he's basically just a like it's pointless. It's similar to the lawyer with Jurassic Park. Like, why does he have to be out in the field? He just mm-hmm. he can just stay at the command center, and everyone else could just go see the park and let him know. Like, what do you think? And uh, it's it's something that just continues to happen in each movie where. The people who like Claire doesn't need to be involved in any of the action in <laughs> the, the world movies. Like it's Owens, obviously, she's former former uh, military, knows how to control dinosaurs or at least try to control dinosaurs, mm-hmm. and he can do everything himself. Claire is basically just a liability on the field.
0: Yeah, it's hard to hard to make arguments for for what happens in the <laughs> in the second trilogy. <laughs> But um... I'll just start
1: with the, other, the other thing was the like the first one where she goes like, you know, I have to come with you because they're my nephews.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's
1: like, well, OK, but, you know, like we both know each other. We've known each other for years. Let me go do the tracking hunting thing. Go find your nephews. You deal with the massive problem you've caused mm-hmm. and try to save everyone in the park. Yeah. Let's do that instead of you. Let, like, let, let Vincent D'Onofrio just go off on a rampaging death
0: troop. yeah if she were a manager of some sort or that like whatever her role was I don't know but you're right you think that she would be uh, that that chain of command would be she would be at some point the decision-maker not uh, abandoning the post and running around
1: exactly yeah like you think she would have that personal responsibility Mm -hmm. of like okay well he's like the guy who actually owns the company is dead Mm -hmm. I I run this park on a day-to-day basis I know all of the things. Also, Vincent D'Onofrio is just looking creepy over there. Yeah. Looking mm-hmm. greedy, looking wants, like he wants to take over anyways. Um, so I'll, I'll deal with this stuff, and then you go save my nephews.
0: Well, uh, speaking of looking greedy and looking like he's going to take over, what uh, what's next for Dan Rose at Sinking Ship Entertainment?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take that as a... <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm actually working on a show right now. Um, can't talk too much about it, but it's mm. um, sort of similar to Dino Dana. It's live-action animation, and um, it's kind of got a message for the world to kind of like, you know, we got to save ourselves. We can't let uh, corporate America run the world and destroy it. We've got to take care of it ourselves. Mm. Um, so that I kind of like love the message that it's putting out there for everybody. Yeah, and I got that for another, I think, a year, and then uh, a couple more shows coming down the pipe. So we still got uh, lots to do, lots to do.
0: And there are dinosaurs in that one.
1: Um, no, sadly no. Oh, okay.
0: Well, if you ever do need an, like an uncredentialed dinosaur guy to consult on upcoming dinosaur projects, uh, don't let you know accusations of nepotism stand in the way.
1: I'll pass that by, but I'll try to sell it with like not the uncredentialed part.
0: Uh-huh. Well, like, if <laughs> nepotism is a problem, I'll stop being your friend right now.
1: <laughs> I mean. Oh, that's a toughie. That's, that's like, <laughs> what do I do? Cause I like you as a friend, but I mean, you could work together. That'd be nice too. Mm-hmm. And then maybe we could develop a work friendship Yes. and just cancel this.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll be canceled before I get to the end of this book. Don't you worry. <laughs> well, it's been awesome. Um, Thanks for jumping yeah, through all the hoops. Yeah. All the hoops to well, get, uh, get a yeah, recording going. I appreciate you, uh, Being the acrobat you are to get... (laughs) So we're... uh... Because
1: I was going to say, I'm like... This is... I I loved... Because I really didn't know much about it though Mm now. So this was really fun. This was really nice to know.
0: All right. Thank you very much to my special guest, Dan Rose, for for joining us today. This week's text is Control, spanning from pages 138 to 143. Uh, Synopsis. Arnold and Hammond quarrel over the difficulties the park must overcome to have Jurassic Park ready for its grand opening. Because... They have all the problems of a major theme park, all the problems of a major zoo, and the added difficulties of caring for animals nobody's ever observed before. It's revealed that Dennis Nedry is here to fix the bugs in the system this weekend, and on the tour, the guests visit the venomous Dilophosaurs. Characters. John Arnold. Arnold apparently is tracking all the problems with Jurassic Park in a continuing effort to get a control of things, adding grinding gears to the list as the tour begins on 138. He disagrees with Hammond about, quote, minor details, that all details are important, spoken like a true man who's worked on nuclear submarines. We're told Arnold is nervous at most times, and now, with the first tour entering the park, he is especially edgy. Arnold's team doesn't often go into the park, like these people on the tour have. We learn that Arnold is a systems engineer and a father who's worked on the Polaris submarine missile, Disney World in Orlando, and Magic Mountain in California, Old Country in Virginia, and World in Houston, and this has given him a, quote, somewhat skewed view of reality, seeing the entire world as a metaphor of a theme park, only half-jokingly. Arnold's experience in theme parks informs his concerns that, quote, minor details can take years to work out of a single park ride, let alone an entire park, on 139. He voices his concerns with Hammond, and even calls him out for, quote, not being around, and therefore, I guess, expedite problem-solving around the island i suspect Hammond has final say, or the stamp of approval, and without him, they can't move forward without, you know, I don't know, do they need him? Whether the Raptors ever escape their pens or not, Arnold believes Jurassic Park is, quote, inherently hazardous on page 140, and the delays are caused by a lack of animal control, not engineering, which is a clever way of saying, yo, these aren't my problems, I can't type a few keystrokes and fix this. He's also got Nedry's back. When Hammond goes to attack Nedry, Arnold restrains him on page 140. With a system this large, there are bound to be glitches. To stay on top of how progress was developing, Arnold has a window on his monitor which shows what Nedry is working on. And it's specifically noted this is not because Arnold doesn't trust Nedry. Then we get some voice on the intercom. Uh, This voice is either someone in maintenance or someone who deploys maintenance staff members to do things like inspect the grinding of gears on the Land Cruisers on 138. John Hammond, he enters control and downplays the grinding gears concern as a, quote, minor detail on 138. Hammond brushes Arnold's concerns off by labeling him a, quote, warrior, dismissing the issues. And again, it's mentioned that Hammond has been an absentee owner at the park. Wu mentioned this, and now Arnold mentions this. Quote, you're just not here to see it, Arnold says, about the problems with the park. Hammond tried to meet Muldoon halfway on controlling the raptors by fitting them with radio collars on page 140, and he disagrees with Arnold, who believes the park is inherently dangerous, and questions his loyalty, asking, whose side are you on, anyway? Hammond doesn't listen to Arnold about the animal control problems at the park, but rather jumps into the, yeah, but you have lots of engin- engineering delays. Don't blame the animals for them. He believes the animals are trainable and will fall in line once the engineering delays are resolved. And the computer delays too. He chastises Nedry for not, quote, having done it right in the first place. Muldoon stands in the corner of the control room, silently watching, presumably, the land cruisers entering the park. He only pipes up when someone alludes to the raptors being a problem, and then makes it clear, quote, they should all be destroyed, on page 139. Jurassic Park doesn't need to put the, quote, most vicious creatures anyone has ever seen on display in their safari park. Harding. Harding is mentioned for the first time. He's the park's veterinarian, and he is one of the few people who actually do go out into the park. Dennis Nedry. Upon Hammond's attack, Nedry says the fixes are, quote, getting there on page 140. He has Arnold's support, and Arnold empathizes with Nedry. He can relate with the tasks that have been set before him. Edry believed that he'd be able to make all the fixes over this weekend when he showed up, but upon seeing the pages and pages of problems, he paled and called Cambridge to tell his staff programmers to cancel their weekend plans and work overtime until Monday. And this required all the phone lines to transfer program data back and forth to his programmers. Richard Kiley, the voice. The voice continues to host the tour, prompted by signals from the motion sensors. So as they arrive at a location, the motion sensor triggers the CD-ROM to play Kylie's recording. And apparently, they're close enough to the aviary to trigger that file. Lex. Lex thinks the Dilophosaurus look pretty on page 142. But upon hearing that they're poisonous, she gets worried and asks Mr. Regis about them. And then she gets frustrated that the Triceratops don't move around. And she yells at them on 143. And she thinks the Triceratops are bozos because they don't impress her. Tim, when Tim hears that the Dilophosaurs are poisonous, he's impressed. And recall, he was quite excited about the toxins and poisons in the cloning lab, too. He's thrilled that these dinosaurs are poisonous, and he thinks that's really cool. He is frustrated that the ride pulls them away from the animals because he'd love to stay and watch it for longer, on page 142. And he bets that Dr. Grant wanted to stop the cars and spend more time with the Dilophosaurs as well. Tim sees, I guess, a kindred relationship between them. And you hear that the Tyrannosaurus is next, Tim thinks to himself, well, that's good. At Regis, Regis tells Lex not to worry about the poisonous dinosaurs on 142. He also adds that Les Gigantes, which is French for the Giants, won't begin construction until November 1990, so it's unlikely anyone will be enjoying this facility for quite a while. Regis doesn't like Lex bothering the animals when she yells at them either. Chef Alain Richard Chef Alain Richard hails from the world-famous Le Beaumaniere bon in France and is in charge of Les Gigantes, a superb three-star dining room and restaurant on site at Jurassic Park, we're told on 143. Tyrannosaurus, were told in passing that they drink the lagoon water and sometimes the tyrannosaurs get sick for an unknown reason. Triceratops, were told the females kill each other, remember, they're all supposed to be females, right, in fights for dominance and have to be separated into groups smaller than six, on 139. Recall, the park has eight Triceratops, so they must be in two small groups. And that must also mean that they've had at least two dead Triceratops who died in fights for dominance as well. Triceratops are Ornithischians who stand motionless in the shade of a large tree on the tour. Their size and grey colour are like an elephant with the truculent stance of a rhino. The horns above each eye curve five feet into the air, looking almost like inverted elephant tusks. and The third rhino-like horn is located near the nose with the beaky snout of a rhino. They're specified as Triceratops serratus, and said not to see well. These won't be the only dinosaurs without strong vision in this novel. And they're nearsighted, like the rhinos of today, and they tend to be surprised by moving objects. They have fan-shaped crests behind their heads, made of solid bone, and it's very strong. They weigh about 7 tons each, and they're quite docile. They allow themselves to be petted, recognize their handlers, and like to be scratched on their hindquarters. Stegosaurs! The, these di- dinosaurs have an intestinal illness that gets mentioned again on page 139. As we were told, the stegosaurs frequently get blisters on their tongues and diarrhea for an unknown reason. And two have died from it already. And now the park only has four stegosaurs remaining, meaning that they've bred at least six of them. The These get skin rashes, and recall, on their first stop on the tour, the Hypsilophidons scratch their heads in a funny way. The animals have a skin problem, perhaps a fungus or an allergy, and the veterinarians are unsure so far, uh, as we're told on page 137. And then the Velociraptors. dash M-. <laughs> Hammond has heard it too many times that they're the most vicious creatures anyone has ever seen. maldon believes they should all be destroyed. There's no place in Jurassic Park for animals this ferocious. Dilophosaurus. This is a bird-like head, on 141, topped with a flaming red crest which are broad, curving crests running along the top of the head from the eyes to the nose, which form a V-shape of of the dinosaur's head. The crest had red and black stripes like a parrot or a toucan. They can see it crouching by the river drinking, on page 142, with a heavy tail, strong hind limbs, and a long neck. It's ten feet tall, spotted yellow and black like a leopard, and it gives a soft hooting cry like an owl. It's said to be one of the earliest carnivorous dinosaurs, and paleontologists believed their weak jaw muscles indicated these were just scavengers, but now that they've been cloned and observed, it turns out they spit venom to the surprise of park employees. Like gila monsters and rattlesnakes, Dilophosaurus secretes a hematotoxin from glands in its mouth, the poison causing unconsciousness within minutes of a bite, so the dinosaur can finish its victims at its own leisure. Quote, making Dilophosaurus a beautiful but deadly addition. To the animals you see here at jurassic park strangely there's no mention of them literally literally spitting localities with the land cruisers here's a hot trivia question for you folks out there looking to stump the jurassic park enthralled fans in your lives what are the toyota land cruisers labeled as and the answer is bb4 and bb5 and we learned that the tour they're taking is called the park drive attraction so there's some trivia for you the control room. This has a big window that overlooks the park, which, recall, slopes down from the north, where there is a mountain, right? So from this window, looking out into the park, which slopes down, they may be actually able to see for quite a distance. It's probably difficult for us to envision this luminous and expansive view from the control room because we're always told how very dark it is inside this room, which is like not what windows do to rooms, especially midday while this tour is being hosted. In any case, in the control room, Arnold sits at the central console at the control panel and staff members rarely ever even go into the park, we're told, but rather observe it from this control room. Isla Nublar. Again, we're told that the land cruisers are heading south, away from the visitor center, and the visitor section of the island, leaving the safety of the electric fences, barbed wire, and steel bars over the windows. Recall the expression, things are going south, which carries the connotation that things are heading down, as opposed to looking up. Because south points down on a compass when held facing true north, I'm not sure this expression applies, but if Crichton did use this intentionally, that's fantastic. We learn that Jurassic Park staff members don't y- actually go out into the park very often, except for Harding, the vet, who sometimes does, we're told once 38. The animal handlers enter, quote, individual feeding houses, but otherwise they just watch the park from the control room, and that's interesting. They've been heading south down the west side of the island, past the Hypsilophodon highlands, and now are following the river to the Ornithischian paddock on their left, and that would be east, I guess, towards the island interior, and they're presently still north of the aviary at this point. The land cruiser rides atop a high ridge overlooking the fast-moving river, which is almost enclosed by dense foliage on both sides. After passing the dilophosaurs, they turn a corner, leaving the river behind. The aviary, the teratops lodge in the aviary, is delayed because the pterodactyls are so unpredictable. We're told by Arnold it's unfinished for visitors, says the recording by Kylie. Sunlight glints off the aluminum struts, and we're told directly below is our Mesozoic jungle river. And Jurassic Park. Arnold considers Jurassic Park, quote, from an engineering standpoint, by far the most ambitious theme park in history on 139. With all the concerns of an amusement park, a zoo, no oh yeah, quote, the unprecedented problem of caring for a population of animals that no one has ever tried to maintain before. Allusions and references. The Polaris submarine missile. John Arnold known as Ray in the film, worked on the Polaris Missile, a two-stage, solid-fueled, nuclear-armed, submarine-launched ballistic missile in the 1960s. Turns out these missiles were the US Navy's first submarine-launched missiles, and the Polaris submarine served from 1961 to 1980, so Arnold would have been serving on this project in its early years. Submarine-launched missiles are, quote, essentially invulnerable to counterattack, or, therefore, known to be very useful to the military. Disney World in Orlando. Located in Lake Buena Vista, Florida, near Orlando, this Walt Disney World opened back in October 1, 1971, so Arnold would have been leaving the U.S. Navy as an aerospace engineer to become a park designer for Disney in the early 1970s. Attractions that opened in the early 70s include Magic Kingdom, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea Submarine Voyage, and Flight to the Moon in 1971, Disney's Village Resort in 1972, the Golf Resort Tom Sawyer Island and the Pirates of the Caribbean in 1973, Discovery Island in 1974, and Space Mountain in 1975. Magic Mountain in California. But then Arnold moved along to work with Magic Mountain in California, which is now Six Flags Magic Mountain. This is in Valencia, California, near Los Angeles, which also opened in 1971. If Arnold were here, he may have helped add its second roller coaster, the Mountain Express, or the park's new complex of spinning rides and what would become known as Backstreet, uh, the new addition's were named things like Himalaya and Electric Rainbow and Tumble Drum and things like that. Old Country in Virginia. Uh, Then Arnold would scoot over to Old Country in Virginia, which you might know by the more contemporary name Bush Gardens in Williamsburg, which opened in 1975. They had rides installed in 1976 like Die Waldkratz and Das Kratzen, and in 1978 the Loch Ness Monster, as well as a monorail and an antique race car track. Astroworld in Houston. This park is in Houston, Texas, of course, opened in 1968, but Arnold would have arrived after his term in Virginia, perhaps in the late 70s or even early 80s. World was sold to Six Flags in 1978. After that time, they installed the Greased Lightning and the Texas Cyclone Rides. Uh, there's a common thread throughout all these amusement parks, and that's one of the amusement park ride design and manufacturer, specifically aero development. It's possible Arnold worked for this company, and therefore worked on projects for these parks without actually changing jobs. Or it could have been another developer, but it seems he'd more likely be an engineer working for a company rather than a continuously changing gigs to do the same work at new parks all over the US, right? We also get an allusion to Paris, France. Uh, For those who don't know, Paris is the capital of France, known to be a romantic tourist destination, very expensive, and filled with luxurious cuisines. Is this an example of the real world simulating an amusement park? Is Paris a caricature of itself? Uh, why not, sure, okay. Or not, I mean, who knows? Uh, we got Phagostomum venulosum. This apparently is a disease where a hookworm eats, like, your gastrointestinal tract, I think. In any case, the animals are said to not have this, though the system mistakenly says that they all have this. Hematotoxins. Unlike the helotoxins mentioned earlier on the tour, in episode 21, the tour part one, we now have a new toxin in the novel, the hematotoxins. It doesn't look like there are hematotoxins in the real world, but something can be hematotoxic. And This is when, when hemotoxins... Which aren't mentioned earlier, or either they, they or maybe they are, but they're spelt wrong, as helotoxins, these things poison the blood and the organs and tissues involved with the production of blood, like bone marrow. That Crichton spells it correctly here suggests that the earlier mentioned helotoxins uh, was probably a typo on page one hundred five. Apparently if you get too sciency in your novel, the editors can't tell the difference between jargon and gobbledygook. That's too bad. La Beau manière en France. Where Wolfgang Puck studied, Chef Alain Richard hails from the world-famous Le Beau en in France and is in charge of Les Gigantes, a superb three-star dining room and restaurant on site at Jurassic Park. This may be a reference to a very similarly spelt luxury hotel resort in Le Beau de Provence, France, named Le Beau Magnier B A U rather than B E A U, or maybe this is another typo or spelling error by Crichton and his editors. Le Stade du Beau in Les Baux de Provence is where Wolfgang Puck trained to become one of most world-famous chefs of our generation, and I guess of all time. So expect the cuisine at Les Gigants to be Wolfgang Puck-level good. Now, I've only... <laughs> okay, so you know that coffee you get in a pouch in your hotel rooms that go in those tiny coffee makers also in your hotel room? Yeah, I had one that had Wolfgang Puck's name on it. So, like, that's as close as I've ever come to Wolfgang Puck's cooking. How close should a person try to getting Wolfgang Puck's food? That's an honest question. Like, is that a life goal for people out there? Should we try and eat Wolfgang Puck food? It's supposed to be very good. Stylistic techniques. We have italics. Oh, balls is in this chapter. And it's even given italics for added emphasis. The scientific names for Phagostomum venulosum, the parasite, Triceratops serratus, Tyrannosaurus rex, and Dilophosaurus are all italicized. And then we get, all right, that shows, yeah, Tim really wants to see the T-Rex. M-Dash and the Velociraptors, M-Dash, on 139. This statement is interrupted (laughs) so that Muldoon can cut us off and say that they should all be destroyed. And then a sentence has been running on in the background, and it resumes as our attention returns to Richard Carley's voice, uh, recorded voice once again, M-Dash, easygoing monsters from a bygone world, on 143. So here we are, uh... Sentences fading in and fading out by virtue of the M-dash. But relax, folks, M-dash. We're safe enough here on 143. This is an instance where the M-dash presents the ending of the sentence, or the point of the sentence. We're safe enough here. Cursing him and belts out one of his oh balls in this chapter, and it's given italics for added emphasis. He dislikes being challenged and disagreed with. Exclamation! This is amazing! Poisonous dinosaurs! On 142. They'd charge our car if they were close enough to see it. On 143, hey, stupid dinosaur, move! On 143 as well. These are all moments where, I guess, great emotion is being evoked, and that's why we get our exclamations. Colon, Uh, we have a part here, the most fearsome predator in the history of the world. Colon, the mighty tyrant lizard known as Tyrannosaurus Rex. On 143, and here the colon is used to present a syntactic subject. In this case, that subject is, colon, Tyrannosaurus. There's some foreshadowing as well. At the end of this... chapter, we have easygoing monsters stand in sharp contrast to what we will see next, the most fearsome predator in the history of the world, the mighty tyrant lizard known as Tyrannosaurus Rex. And this is fun because anyone who's reading this book wants them to get to the Tyrannosaurus. And this chapter ends with the promise that the Tyrannosaurus is just around the corner. Literary techniques. We've got metaphors. Uh, There's actually one name, the metaphor of the theme park. And this is fun. So do we notice that Arnold views the world through the cynical metaphor of the amusement park? Does this perspective inform our reading of Arnold going forward? I'm not sure that it does, but I believe that Arnold views the world as a bunch of merchants looking to replicate amusement for fun for the purposes of attracting commerce. In that vein, it's marketing and make-believe. And operating in a world where people are portraying one motive for the purposes of another, that can be a cynical world. Uh, We also get the hooting call that the delophosaur drifted across the afternoon air toward them. And the sound itself only metaphorically would drift, but you can imagine it passing by casually, and even gently, right? That's a soft little hooting sound. That's fun. Similes with the truculent stance of a rhino, which uh, we can envision. A rhino-looking challenging isn't so hard uh, to, to imagine, so that's a good simile. Quote, the horns above each eye curve five feet into the air, looking almost like inverted elephant tusks, which is a great way to perhaps envision something unfamiliar if you don't know what a triceratops horns look like through the vision of something more familiar the tusks of an elephant. Uh, these would be, I would presume, less curved than elephant tusks. But uh, that being said, uh, it also get, puts the it uses this image that comes from a still wild and massive animal, the elephant. So those are, those are good, I guess, um, connotations to evoke through the use of a simile. So that's good. They just sit there like in a picture book says Lex, of the Triceratops. And that's good, too. It's a vision that Lex could relate to, a picture book, which she's, I mean, she's just a kid. And also, it shows her frustration. Hey, if they're gonna go, if they're not gonna move, why the hell did I fly all the way out here? I could see stationary pictures back home in bed, you stupid dinosaurs, you bozos. (laughs) Motifs, we've got uh, responsibility and safety. Arnold challenges Hammond on the safety of the island, outlining how the dinosaurs aren't what they expected. And many of them are very dangerous, which has affected the park's opening date. We're told on page 140. The jungle river ride was delayed by the spitting Dilophosaurs. The pteratops lodge in the aviary is delayed because the pterodactyls are so unpredictable. They can't control the animals. These aren't engineering delays, says Arnold, a.k.a. they aren't my problems. We're also given a note in this chapter that all the phone lines are being used by Nedry to transfer program data back and forth to his programmers in Cambridge, so they have no connection to the mainland anymore. That's irresponsible. That's not safe. The illusion of control in a previous episode, episode 22, The Tour Part 2, with awesome guest Danielle Weigel, she emphasized how everything in the park was teetering on the brink of collapse, that nothing was under control, that there were problems with The park at every turn. And this chapter certainly illustrates that. Arnold, the warrior, is perhaps overburdened with chores as well. As cost effective as it is only to employ a handful of people to operate the entire park from the control room, single handedly, it's overwhelming. Arnold describes the amount of work that went into getting the Park Drive attraction operating, the CD ROM to interact with the motion sensors, weeks of adjustments, and now they're finding new problems with the gear shifts grinding. It's a cascading, unending series of glitches and bugs that are exhausting and overwhelming. It's only a matter of time before this, quote, inherently hazardous park goes tragically wrong from Arnold's perspective. And that said, the computer system is very large, and there is a list of 130 items to be fixed, including lots of odd aspects. The animal feeding program resets itself every 12 hours, not every 24, and won't record feedings on Sundays. And they can't tell how much the animals are eating. The security systems controlling the security card-activated doors cut out when the main power was lost, and they didn't come back with auxiliary power. And we should maybe see if that becomes a problem later in the book. The light-dimming energy conservation program only worked on alternating days of the week. The auto-poop system that inspected for parasites reported that all specimens have a parasite, though none actually do. Handlers couldn't empty the hoppers to prevent the medication of the phagostomum without signaling an unstoppable alarm, etc., etc. Pages and pages of errors. Let's talk about tension. The first page of this chapter on 138 is filled with tension, although it's quick and easy to blow right by it in a casual reading. But we've got Arnold chain-smoking, who is cataloging problems. We've got small details already going wrong. We've got this mysterious park that nobody even enters while the tour is going south, and Arnold worries about a, quote, hundred details. Crichton has employed all the elements to raise the tension, and all that's happening is people are leaving the visitor compound and entering the park. And a lesson for writers is to create a worry wart for your novel so you can use them to raise the tension. Having them worry about every little thing that could go wrong is an interesting way to get the reader to feel more discomfort or dread for our heroes. While it's possible that people embarking on a tour may face literally no problems, by having someone who worries about them, there could be a problem at every corner that they don't see, You know, just waiting to happen. So that's cool. Contrivances and plot, one of the things that allows Jurassic Park, the novel, to crash and burn into a dinosaur rampage that we love so much is lousy leadership. The man in charge cares only for their own ambitions, and this is a common contrivance of plot for all kinds of sci-fi and action adventures. We don't get well-rounded villains who are real people with real feelings and frustrated ambitions, but rather, psychopaths with tunnel vision. That's John Hammond, and this chapter is a continued example of him dismissing his experts and their concerns. He just did it with Wu in the chapter version 4.4, and now he does it with Arnold in this chapter. And there's no board of directors, there's no committee, there's no regulators, it's just the investors and their proxy, Donald Gennaro. And it's all done in secret, recalled from the introduction. The biotech industry in its infancy is rushing off to develop who knows what in in, in secrecy w- without oversight and a hasty pursuit for profits timeline we learned that arnold worked for the military in the late 60s until he had a child and he helped to build disney world which was under construction uh, and opened in 1971 magic mountain which also opened in 1971 Old Country, which opened in 1975, and World, which opened in 1978. And after hopping around for quite a few years, perhaps he settled down with World because we don't know what he did from 1978 to 1987 when he's recruited by John Hammond. As well, we know that the Lophosaurus's soft hooting cry drifts across the afternoon air on 142. So this tour is considered to still be in the afternoon, so before 5 o'clock-ish. The dinosaurs. There are 15 species in the park, and, quote, most of them are dangerous, says Arnold on 140. Hammond believes that the animals will, quote, fall into place once the park's bugs and glitches are resolved, and that they are, quote, trainable. From the beginning, we're told a core belief was that the animals, however exotic, would fundamentally behave like animals in zoos everywhere. They would learn the regularities of their care, and they would respond. And the herbivores are going to be continuously portrayed as docile and harmless, almost like domestic cattle in every instance. The Triceratops in this chapter is depicted as just, you know, living up to these expectations, that they they like being scratched, they like being pet, they come right up to you, it's no problem. They love their trainers. Although, you know, depicting a Triceratops as anything but fairly aggressive and very dangerous is uncommon. Uh, For them to be gentle, easing-going animals seems to be an interesting turn that Creighton has employed here. Even rhinos are not safe and cuddly. I mean, it's just nuts. Voice acting. So there are a variety of recordings that Richard Kiley, who we've been told they spared no expense to bring on, which means he sounds like he's earned more than scale to record these tracks, that the they're very dated in time. The aviary is unfinished for the public. And though there are 15 species on the island, apparently that number goes up and down, as who tells us. At one point, they had... They thought they had more than 20 species, but they were flawed or something, and they presently only have 15 species, we're told on 111. So as things change, they gain an animal, or a ride comes back online, or a new facility opens, or more likely an existing facility closes, are they to have the expensive and aged Richard Kiley return to record new sound bites? It's always pestered me, even ages before this deep dive, that it was as if he were a live docent, whereas with the slightest changes at the park, the specifics of his recordings would become inaccurate or out of date. And in fact, this becomes a problem almost right away as Kylie introduces Le Gigante, a three-star restaurant on the bluff overlooking the tour, which won't begin construction until next November, which is November 1990. So it's already out of date. It's not reflecting what, what people see. It's just, it's out of date. It bugs me. Park management! Arnold tells Hammond about his concerns with the park, especially the glitches and bugs which concern him in the fields of the amusement park, the zoo, and caring for, quote, unknown cloned dinosaurs on 139. He then calls Hammond out for not even being on the island anymore as of late. And my question here is, is Hammond required to let Arnold fix glitches and bugs? Like, sure, Hammond downplays Arnold's worries, but so what? Is that stopping Arnold from making fixes or exploring problems? Like, Hammond is stopping Wu... From releasing version 4.4, yes. But how is Hammond hindering Arnold from getting the park up and running? I don't think he is. Arnold's just complaining. Now, Hammond is stopping Muldoon from destroying the Velociraptors. That seems like an easy decision, and he's interfering with that. that the Raptors still exist is Hammond's fault. Hammond is personally responsible for the Raptors in everything they do. He's actively prevented a safety measure from being implemented. In this case, destroying the Raptors. Errors! We're told that the weak jaws of the Dilophosaurs had paleontologists believing that the animals may have been scavengers, but quote, now we know they are poisonous on page 142. This is wrong. Biologically, venomous is a term for an organism that bites or stings to inject their toxins, in this case spits. Whereas poisonous is a term for organisms which you must ingest to become poisoned, like a mushroom or those cute frogs. You can eat a rattlesnake if you want it. It's not poisonous. But if it were to strike you with its venom and fangs, you would become poisoned. A poisonous mushroom does not strike you with its poison. It is poisonous in and of itself. The rattlesnake is venomous. The mushroom is poisonous. Categorically different. This should have been corrected before the novel went to print, but alas... As Crichton admits on page 400 in the acknowledgements, quote, This book is entirely fiction, and the views expressed here are my own, as are whatever factual errors exist in the text. And that's a humble concession I think that we can all appreciate. The island layout is still fun for me to try and envision this park as realistically as possible. Things are starting to get complicated on this tour, though. We can track where we went so far, south, along the western side of the island, from where... From where, where from the visitor compound they entered the Hypsilophidon highlands, seeing the Othnelia and the then further south along the Mesozoic jungle river, where they can see the aviary in the distance, they're still north of it, while alongside the Ornithischian paddock, and they are presently looking down on the Dilophosaurus. Maybe they're leaving the Ornithischian paddock at this point as they segue towards the Dolophosaurus, I'm not sure. Next, we're told the Land Cruisers ride atop a high ridge overlooking the fast-moving river, which is almost enclosed by dense foliage on both sides. And these descriptions remain consistent later on in the novel, though there's no mention for which way the river was flowing, nor of the waterfall that apparently they just went past on page 142. On Grant and the kids' return through the park, the river flows north and will culminate in a waterfall, And this is strange because the park peaks at the north end and descends into the south, but here the river flows from south to north. And this makes the argument that the center of the park is actually a deep valley, like the center of an extinct volcano. I'm not sure when the time will be right, but I'll get into my theory on the overall geographic layout of the island, but there's an argument to make that this volcanic seamount has eroded back from an eruption, and the park is nestled in the geomorphologically weathered remnants of an ancient volcanic crater. In any case, they've been traveling south with the dinosaur paddocks presumably on their inland side, and as they pass the Dilophosaurs, they quote, turn a corner leaving the river behind 142, which may mean that they are heading west towards the shore. Uh, Now, to their right, it's reported that there is a bluff, and on it, Les Gigantes the site of Jurassic Park's Superb 3 Star Dining rest- dining Room. Now, this may be on a bluff on the outer rim of the valley toward the shore. Recall that there are sheer cliffs that drop into the water at the edge of the island, but for now, this this restaurant is not there and won't begin construction until sometime later next year. And also on the right, I suppose, below the bluff, are the Triceratops. <sighs> this can get tricky <laughs> trying to literally envision what this island must be like, but I bet Crichton had a little map of the island that he referenced when he was writing this that seen that that'd be really cool thank you to Dan Rose for joining us thanks uh, Dan I appreciate it we had a lot of fun like I said I haven't giggled that much in a while so that was great thanks bud I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me if you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park you can do that by connecting with me on my at ryansrogers at gmail.com if you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, chit-chat but any part of the book. or also not the book. We're all you'd like. Jurassic Park Cast is a part of the Spring Chicken's banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chicken's funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the infantry, and the worst of them all, the King's Street Chambers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash chicken capers and me on twitter at rogers ryan 22. thank you dearly for tuning into the jurassic park cast, the jurassic park podcast where we talk about the novel jurassic park also until next we know the spark is gone
2: you spend